It's the British Wrestling Experience with Martin, Ollie, and Benno. Welcome to a special edition of the British Wrestling Experience on postwrestling.com. I'm your host Martin Bushby and joining me today is my special guest Daniel Richardson. Now this name might not be immediately familiar to a, a lot of fans. Some might know him under his wrestling name Dragon Isu. Some might know him under his pen name James Dixon. But he's been heavily involved in the British wrestling scene now for over 14 years. He's been heavily involved with promotions such as What Culture Pro Wrestling, Defiant Wrestling, Three Count Wrestling, and of course the infamous One Pro Wrestling, One PW, from the mid 2000s. He's also been a consultant on the latest series of ITV's World of Sport, as well as many, many other things. So, uh, hope you enjoy this interview, and thanks for listening. And we are back on the show with uh, Daniel Richardson. Some also might know him as the author James Dixon or as the wrestler Dragon Isu. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Martin. And yes, I have very many names. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot's happened in your career in wrestling, both in the ring and behind the scenes. But I mean, before we get into that, let's go way, way back. I mean, like most people of a certain age... Did your wrestling fandom start when the WWF made their big push into the UK in the late early or 90s? I mean, already seen sort of like the dying embers of World of Sport as a kid. I mean, how old do you think I am, man? I mean, (laughs) and that term of a certain age, man, I I do love being in that bracket now. Um, No, I I started watching in 91, which I guess for people of the so-called certain age is is when we all started watching. um, I definitely fall into that bracket, yep. Good, see, see, at least I'm not alone in this, but, you know, no, it was, it was WWF, it was the late, uh, sorry, the, the late 91, it was, uh, into 92, obviously SummerSlam 92 was a big influence on me, as it was for, I'm sure, a, a lot of fans at the time, mm. uh, you know, wrestling was hard over here then, and, yeah, it was very easy to get swept up in it when I was, I guess I was eight year old or something, which I think is the perfect age to be introduced to that. I mean, you started to train as a wrestler yourself, didn't you, in 2003? I mean, I can't imagine wrestling schools were that prominent over here in the UK back then. I mean, how did you manage to find a school, especially uh, around the northeast of the UK? Uh, Well, I was a backyard wrestler for a while, like most wrestling fans who want to be in wrestling but don't know how to get into wrestling. Um, And I used to backyard wrestle with Pac, who obviously is now Neville, mm-hmm. or, well, kind of is Neville at the moment, yeah. <laughs> um, and, a, and a couple of other guys who actually went on to make it in wrestling, so some of whom were also in WWE, I won't name and shame them all, but, <laughs> you know, we backyard wrestled for a while, and, and it kind of grew into this thing, like into a promotion, like a lot of backyard wrestling groups do, yeah. where, you know, it's, it, and it becomes very important, you know, and, and then... Uh, <laughs> We found a, a training school run by a guy called Adam Brown up in South Shield, which was about 40 minutes north of where we were. Right. And, you know, a couple of the guys were like, you know, let's let's go along. And I wasn't really – I didn't really want to. And I think from what I remember, Mr. Perfect died. And it was the same day that I started training because my, I was really upset about it because he was one of my favorite wrestlers. And, you know, I, I, I was a huge fan of him. And one of my friends was just like, let's go to this training. And, you know, it can almost be like a, 
the dedication to him. And even if and even if it sucks or whatever, that's fine. You know, it's, let's just do it and see how it is. So I was like 19 at the time, I guess, or, or almost 19. And um, yeah, we went along and we, we trained with, with Adam Brown and a couple of guys from that school ended up, you know, making it to a reasonable level. Some of them are still around now on the indie scene. Um, and, and it kind of went from there. So, I mean, just quickly going back to your uh, days yarding, um, was it do, was it the sort of like where you set up a little ring in your um, sort of backyard or were you doing it in sort of school fields and stuff? Budget, Martin. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have the money for a ring. No, what we used <laughs> was, um, there was a clearing in the, in the woods near where we lived and it was just a, an open sort of mudded area with a big tree in it. And it was really secluded. There's trees all around. It was like a, like the kind of route you'd go on if you were going out walking mm. and walking your dog or whatever. And we got a blue tarpaulin, a big blue tarpaulin, and that was the ring. Um, the tree was obviously the rope because it was the way this tree was. It wasn't growing from the ground. It was growing from this river that was just over the the edge of where this mound was, mm. and it was growing upwards in a way where. You could sit on it, you could climb on it, you know, it was great. And eventually there was an even bigger tree, which Neville Pack climbed up and did some sort of crazy move out of. Um, so that's how it started. And then we moved, uh, we upgraded and we moved to a sports hall or a leisure center and they let us rent out the place for like three or four hours every Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon. Um, we got to use blue mats, which believe me, after bumping on, tarpaulin on hard mud <laughs> uh, we got a crash mat we got a horse which we not an actual horse that you ride a, yeah <laughs> um and you could do all kinds of aerial moves on there and also practice various things so yeah that's where a lot of us we kind of half trained ourselves which upset a lot of people mm. in the establishment in the area once we started to train properly um didn't like these backyarders coming into business all of a sudden half-trained backyarders yeah. and i understand that in hindsight but you know so that took a while before people got over that some people never did but you know that's that was that was how it was that's how we came into it you know and i i never really a lot of guys want to shy away from the fact that they were backyarders that I, I don't see why i think it's just an extension of being a fan it's just it's wanting to be part of it and british wrestling now it's more accessible than ever for for better and for worse so, you know, it, it's easy now. You don't have to back you out as much. But back then, yeah, man, we, we were all doing it. We were all doing it. Well, yeah, I mean, just look at Will Ospreay. I mean, he's always raving about his backyard in days, isn't he? So, uh, yeah, there you go. I think people are less likely to shy away from it now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and look, WWE does it as well. Like, Mick Foley came from backyard, and the Hardy Boys came from backyard, and CM Punk came from backyard, and... and you know, in in different different levels. You know, it it was still setting up a ring in the backyard and putting on shows, or you know, just jumping off roofs or whatever it might yeah. be. So, a lot of guys. I would I would wager that a good percentage of the roster was backyarded, of you know, in some way before they were, you know, proper wrestlers, so to speak. Yeah, you can completely imagine so. I mean, uh, moving on to your first wrestling character now, Ice-17. I mean, where did the name come from for this? And uh, what was the thought process behind your first ever wrestling character that you put together? There wasn't much thought process. It was, um, <laughs> as you can tell, it was the most generic, indie-rific name you can ever imagine. I mean, it's not much better now, but I'm stuck with it. But 
basically what what happened was I, I used to have a bunch of characters when I was wrestling in my living room when I was about 10. Um, you know, because I'd wrestle with my brother and we'd have all these characters ourselves, our own promotion. And it's kind of pre-backyard wrestling, backyard wrestling, as it were. And I'm sure it's something that everybody's done as well. But, yeah. you know, you have all these different characters. And I was watching WWF, it must have been 1995 or 96. And the tag team, uh, PG-13, were yeah. on. I think they were just jobbers. It was before they were with the Nation of Domination. But I think they were just jobbers doing a squash. And I was like, PG-13, what a strange name. And at the time... And because I'm English, you know, I didn't know that PG-13 was a, a way of, like, the American, what, what's it called, certification Yeah, thing. that's the one, yeah, like film certification, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I didn't realise that that's what it was, so I just thought, oh, that's a, what a strange name, and one of them was called JC Ice, and I was like, oh, well, I'll be Ice 17, because 17 looks good when it's written in Roman numerals. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's all it was. And it was just one character. I think there was a, this Ice 17 was part of this little faction. Um, I think they were called Fire and Ice with a, someone called T-Fire. You know, and yeah. again, just a rip-off as well. And and then when I was like, well, what's my name going to be? I was like, oh, well, that kind of sounds weird. It's memorable in the sense that it's like, it's a, it's got a number in it, you know? <laughs> and that was, that was my sort of 19, 20-year-old thinking. So I was like, yeah, I'll just be Ice 17 and I'll... I'll wear pink and black because I'm a big Bret Hart mark, and that was that. And that's what I was for about two years until I was like, "Well, this this is no good." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, b- before we get there, I mean, um, in 2004, you set up the company Three Count Wrestling or Three CW for short uh, with Mike Groom and Stevie Aaron. Um, you started running shows in the northeast of the UK. I mean, this is also where you made your debut as a wrestler. I mean, what can you tell us more about uh, the first few years of Free CW and setting up your own promotion? I mean, there wasn't a great deal of promotions around in uh, 2004 on the British scene, was there? Oh, it was, a, it was horrible, the scene back then. I mean, the guys around now don't realize how lucky they are, but I mean, we, not to say we didn't enjoy it at the time, because of course we did, but yeah, they're, they're very privileged these days. <laughs> and I realise that makes me sound old. But <laughs> actually, my first match was actually against Doug Williams in there, the training school, um, which was an experience, my first match to be Doug. Mm. Uh, and my second match was on an all-star wrestling show with guys like Robbie Brookside and uh, Brian Danielson. Oh, yeah. Wow. So that was a, a steep learning curve. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I got the crap being out of me in a battle royal with chops and you know kicks and who's yeah. this hard-trained guy with the terrible gear because i didn't even have the my original like wrestling gear then it was just kind of small t- i don't i don't even know what it was some boxing boots that didn't really match anything else and it was just it was terrible <laughs> and then 3cw was basically our way of going well there's no real wrestling promotions around here let's let's just do it ourselves. You know, we've got a roster of like 20 guys from the backyard in world who want to do this. Let's just do our own thing. And it was, we were the epitome of what American guys used to call the outlaw promotions, you know, mm. unlicensed, unregulated, uncouth. You know, it was just, it was kind of, let's just do it and see what happens. How hard can it be? And we put on some pretty appalling shows, you know, and with some pretty appalling wrestlers myself included very much and 
yeah, but it was great fun and we all enjoyed it. And those early days, it was all about let's just get ourselves out there and do it. And from there, quite quickly, we were quite savvy in forming allegiances with other promotions like SWA in Scotland, which was run by a guy called Peter Murphy, Conscience, um, and uh, MPW in Coventry, which was uh, at least in part run by Magic, who we'd met at SWA. Mm. Then we started to spread out there because that introduced us to Hammerlock because uh, they were both Hammerlock guys, and that in turn introduced us to you know these other promotions dotted around. And, and we started to – it became a back-scratching thing. You know, we'd, we'd book their talent from their training school. They'd book ours. You know, we all started to work with each other and a little union formed, which was which was quite good. It was quite positive because that kind of thing wasn't really happening at the time. And I remember we were sort of accidental trailblazers in a way because Hammerlock and FWA used to be at odds for a long time. And I remember we booked a match. I think it was Stevie Knight and um, Conscience, and it was Hammerlock versus FWA. So this was an, in like some tiny little social club in front of. 100 people or something mm. but still revolutionary for the time and, <laughs> and and we used to do things like that and we didn't care about sort of silly promotional boundaries we'd work with with anybody and yeah it, it developed from there really it turned out fairly well no, no one thought it'd last as long as it did or, or has i guess well yeah it's lasted uh, for years and years now hasn't it um i mean uh, <laughs> I mean, running your first initial shows, I mean, what were some of the things that were the biggest learning curve for you from setting up a promotion and running your first couple of shows? Um, get a better ring than one that takes four hours to set up. <laughs> um, pick a venue where the ceiling is high enough that you can come off the middle rope. Not yeah. just the, not the top rope, the middle rope. <laughs> um, but and then, and then sort of move on to the top rope after you've achieved that first goal. Um, charge more than three pound for tickets. <laughs> that was a big one. Um, don't bleed and do violent head droppy matches in front of sixty people who yeah. don't know what they're watching. You know, there was a lot of lessons learned very quickly. <laughs> get get a venue that has a locker room rather than two temporary partitions on a stage housing thirty people. Wow. You know, yeah, this kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, so th- there was a lot of that, but we le- we learned an awful lot awfully quick about sort of what to do, what not to do, um, not to send out some wrestlers to incite the locals when you're in a rough part of town. Yeah, going to jump in the ring and threaten to stab you. You know, basic things like that, really. <laughs> yeah, just the basics. Uh, just the- <laughs> I mean, moving into uh, 2005 and the uh, second year of 3CW, you were, uh, I mean, one of your most famous moments came in the second year of the company, teaming with Amazing Red, who was uh, lived up to his name. He was red hot at the time, wasn't he? And you were facing off against yeah. Stevie Lynn and Loki. And I mean, this was before you could see imports up and down the country every other weekend. I mean, it was really quite rare to see uh, two names like this, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean... I'm I'm just galled by the fact I have a famous moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, what happened there was Alex Shane was running one of his big events. I forget which one it was. And he'll kill me for not knowing, but it was it was one of the Coventry Skydome events. And I remember saying to him, "Book Loki." I loved Loki. I thought he was great. Yeah. And I saw that red and Loki match in Ring of Honor. I was like blown away by it. I thought this is amazing. I love that Matrix spot. It's corny now, maybe, when you look back on it. 
but it was cool at the time, yeah, you know. Definitely. It's definitely been surpassed by a million guys doing a million things, mm. but at the time it was really fun. And I was just like, man, Alex, book Loki, you know, just book him and then 3CW can use him. And I wanted to work with him, you know. I wanted to work with guys who were were doing well and, you know, that people knew and, and like, see if, am I any good or am I just completely in the wrong profession, mm. you know? And and it was a bit of both most of the time, but we eventually we got him to agree to come in. We got red as well. We did did this mixed this mixed tag. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know yeah. this tag. <laughs> it was one on one team, one on the other. Um, and I remember when we did that match with Key, like we were sat backstage working out. Key was great. Gets a bad rap from people. One of the nicest guys I ever met. Um, and we worked this match out. And I remember Red and Key going like, "Do you want to do the the spot?" and me and Stevie Lynn were just like, man, this will be great. You know? yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it was in this random little ex mining steelworks town or whatever it was in the north, you know, yeah. in the yeah. in the mucky north, and we had there's Loki <laughs> international star. But and I remember on the day I used to I used to work night shifts in a snook hall, and I remember getting picked up on the morning after my shift. So I'd been up about 12, 12, 14 hours at this point. Got picked up, couldn't sleep during the day because we were just hanging out. So like, right, we need, need to sleep on the night because we've got to go and pick up Red from the airport in the yeah. morning. Couldn't sleep on the night either because we were just so wired from being awake all day. So but when I went into that match, I hadn't slept for 56 hours, I think it was. Wow. Um, so I was pretty, pretty beat. <laughs> and... And surviving purely on energy drinks, which I which I don't advise. And I just remember, like, I was like, man, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have some sort of fucking sugar crash or something, you know? I was like, I hope I really hope that doesn't happen. Um, and then the very first move, I got in there with Key. We locked up. He sent me to the corner. He did a chop, got me in the throat. I was like, right, can't feel my Adam's apple, after, <laughs> you know? And I remember sort of going over and tagging Red. And like he just gave me this knowing look, like I've been there, man. <laughs> mm. But but we got through it and it was fine. And afterwards, I, it was great. And then I slept for about a day and a half and went to Tenerife for a week to relax. Yeah, to, <laughs> to um, yeah, make a uh, comeback from the uh, low key chop to the throat. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, those are quite the thing. <laughs> Mate, well, man, it was it was such a learning experience because that was where I learned to chop. And like later on in my quote unquote career. Like chopping was one of the things I got booked for. Mm. I mean, I can't do it or couldn't do it anywhere near the level of someone like Walter can now. But I had a pretty hard chop for my time on this scene over here. Yeah, you know, so I'd always get booked with the other guys who were apparently stiff or hard hitting or whatever it was. So you know, because promoters just wanted to see us beat each other up, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember it was in that match with Loki where I learned how to do it. Like he taught me his technique for how he does it. You know, a lot of guys just do the big sweep or the overhand or whatever. But this is a full arm. It's like your hand and your forearm, and it's you don't sweep it across. It hits and it stays there, and it makes a thunderclap sound. It busts guys up pretty bad if you do it enough. You know, like not in a dangerous way, but in a you'll go red. Yeah. You know, and what Key taught me as well was that if you're going to do that and you're going to be the guy who chops people, you've got to be willing to take more in return so anytime i ever do like a chop exchange and that's to this day like if i do a chop exchange with somebody 
I'll hit them, I'll light them up, you know, I'll I'll go to town on them. But when it, I always give them that spot where they get to do the comeback on me, and I'll hook the ropes and I'll just stay there and let them chop me until their arms tired. You know, I will yeah. I will never you'll never ever ever see me unhook my arm and move away out of the way of them because I you know what if I've done it first then you do what you want back. It's fair. It's only a chop. What's it going to do? You know, it's going to bust you up a bit. Yeah, <laughs> give you a, a few welts on your chest. But yeah, that's a good philosophy to have, I guess, isn't it? You know, only give out what you're willing to take, I guess. So, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it was also around this time that you changed your name to a Dragon Isu. I mean, um, you described uh, coming up with Ice Seventeen. I mean, why why the change um, at this time after being going through Ice for a couple of years? This one's nearly as bad as the other one, you know. Um, <laughs> so what happened? I was like, I'd started to get influenced a lot by Stevie Lynn, who a lot of guys, like wrestling fans now probably don't even remember him. But, you know, he was kind of the hot guy in the British scene at the time. He'd, mm. he'd done some stuff for FWA. He was getting over because he could do this uh, shooting star press, I think it was, which at the time that was not many people could do one of those. Yeah. And he was very into things like, um, I don't even know if it was PWG then, but Super Dragon and and guys like Super Dragon, the the sort of indie workers of the time. Yeah. And, and they, these guys weren't big by any means like the indie guys are now. You know, there'd be no all in with with like Super Dragon. No. <laughs> but but Super Dragon was this really stiff looking worker. You know, he he was he was just good. Like he was just entertaining to watch for someone you know, of, of my age at that time in my early twenties. And I was like, man, this guy's so cool. You know, I, I like this guy. It's great. And I was like, I wish I was like that rather than this stupid Bret Hart ripoff. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? And I'd started to work in a much more indie rific way. Lots of head drops, lots of no selling, <laughs> lots of trades and silliness, which you can thank Stevie Lynn for again. Yeah. And, I remember just being like, you know what, I'm just going to, it's now or never really, like if I leave it too long, you can you get stuck with it. So I was like, I'll just change it. I'll just change it. I'll be dragging something. And I remember playing on a game called uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which is a Star Wars game. Yeah. And it's, it's before I'd even watched Star Wars, if you can believe that, but I started to wow. play this game because I was told it was great. And it was like, what's your character name? I was like, I don't know, dragon something. I like, I like dragons, you know? Um, and I was like, I wonder what I'll be Ice Dragon. I was like, ah, that sounds stupid. What would a Jedi be called? And I was like, I wonder what Ice is in Japanese. Because I was starting to get influenced by Japanese workers as well. Mm. Uh, Kabashi, for example. Um, I stole a lot of his stuff. So <laughs> I typed it into um, whatever it was then. Was it Google then? I don't know. It was a long time ago. But Lycos, I think, wasn't the original one. Was it? Yeah, Isn't he a wrestler? The, like, yeah, the original Google. <laughs> is that really what it was? Man, I can't even remember. But I, I eventually found out that it was Aizu. It meant ice. And I was like, oh, Ice Dragon, that's a pretty cool name. I was like, oh, I'll be, I'll call myself Dragon Aizu on this Star Wars game. And then I played this game, and it's great, by the way. Better than any of the movies, the story, I will say. <laughs> and, and as I was playing it, and this this character in the game, he went to the dark side and he was so cool and he was just like throwing lightning at people and setting them on fire and he was just this badass. I was like, man, I'm going to have to call myself Dragon Eyes because this guy's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and like looking back now, I'm like, man, I wish I had a better name. You know, I wish I wasn't called that. But it, but like, like I thought would happen 
with A seventeen. Eventually, it sticks, and it's like anything else sounds silly, really, when you try and change it. So that was that. So blame Star Wars and PG thirteen for my so called career. I've heard I've heard a lot worse names. I think I think you're being <laughs> unnecessarily harsh on yourself there. But um, yeah, so obviously that name stuck with you for the rest of your career. And um, I mean, you mentioned him before, but. Um, Around this sort of time, uh, Pat came into Free CW after uh, training around the Newcastle area. And I mean, obviously, you're going to worldwide fame as Neville, but what are some of your memories of uh, moving from the backyard and working with him now that he was a, a trained wrestler? Um, he was a dick at first. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we, well, no, that's not fair. We all thought he was a dick because we tried to book him for some 3CW shows. And obviously, we knew him from, from backyard wrestling. And he was kind of aloof with us about it. But it turned out it wasn't him. He'd mm. been given bad advice that he couldn't work anywhere else. He could only work for his home promotion that trained him. So he was just doing what he was told. And when he eventually broke out of that and started to wrestle for 3CW, it was then that it opened him up to the world, really. So he had a match. I don't know what the show was, but it was on a Billingham 3CW show and Billingham was there like the home venue it was where we had that low key match you know it's where we had you know all, all the guys when we had all the Noah guys it was always in Billingham it was the home venue and they're going back there in a, in a couple of months as well so that'll be great but we had the 1PW promoter in the crowd I'd invited him I think I'd invited him or he just said he was coming to come and watch and he saw Pac and he was like man can I get this guy on like in a week and a half's time at the show and we were like, yeah, you know, he's not our guy. He's just, yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk to him for you. And, and Pac was up for it. So he traveled down with us. Um, and it was supposed to be, it was May 2000 and whatever, five, six. I don't, I, I have no idea. It's what, whatever it was. Um, I know the show is called Know Your Enemy. And <laughs> I say I know it was. It might have been called Know Your Enemy. 2006 where he had that three-way with you and Stevie Lynn. Is that what it was? Yeah. See, research, man, that's good. There we go. <laughs> Basically, what was supposed to happen in that three-way, because that was his first match for PW, it was supposed to be um, me and, I think it was me and Stevie against Pac and Chad Collier. Mm. Remember Chad Collier, he's very, very technically sound, very Dean Malenko-esque in his work, kind of boring to watch, I thought. Very talented in terms of his technical ability, but it never really translated in an interesting way for me as a viewer. No. Um, and we were not particularly excited about working with him because it was like, you've got Pac who flies around, Steve, Stevie Lynn who's all head drops and, you know, kills indie spots. Me at this point is now hitting hard and doing Canadian Destroyers and whatever. And back before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> And we were like, ah, it turned out someone had missed a flight. I can't remember who it was. I think it was just incredible, but I can't remember. Um, or he wasn't there for whatever reason. Chad Collier got bumped on at the main show, and we had this pre-show three-way, and we had about half an hour to put it together. And back then, like half an hour now, it'd just be like, whatever. You know, just yeah. call it in the ring, whatever, it's fine. But back then it was like, well, we've got to get all of our stuff in. What you know, we thought the moves were important, and and in many ways, at that point, they probably were for us on that show. But 
it, it turned out this pre-show was actually in front of the full crowd. It was basically the main show, you know, everybody, mm-hmm. everyone was sat down. And we went out there and we, we had this three-way and we knew that Pac was going to be over. We knew that when people saw him, he was going to get over. And so we did everything we could really to make him get over. Because we were already working there, you know, we were already in and we wanted him to be in. We wanted our, because he was our friend by this point. And we wanted our, our friend to be working there. And lo and behold, it got this is awesome chance back before they were cool. And, <laughs> you know, Pac was over like Rover. And we were like, man, job done. And then the next day, I think we were on the main show in a six-way or something. But And it, it was the same again, get Pac over. And with, within a couple of months, he didn't need our help. <laughs> and he was uh, working with AJ Styles and yeah. going on and going to wherever. But... You know he deserved he deserved everything he got. Great, he is a great guy. He's one of the the absolute nicest guys in wrestling. Um, always has been. Always so humble and so very self-deprecating. I remember we used to ride together a lot after that. You know, up and down the country because we we lived close by. So if mm. if I was booked, it made sense. Well, you might as well use pack. You know, it makes it easier. Makes a lot of sense. And we'd we travel a lot, talk a lot, and I remember saying to him, like, you're gonna you're gonna make it, you know. And a lot and don't get me wrong, a lot of people said this to him. You yeah. know, it's yeah. not like I discovered this yeah. talent. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't hard to see. And I remember saying to him, like, you're gonna you are gonna make it in WWE. Before that was before everybody went, you know, because now you you're hot on the indies for two months and WWE'll throw a contract. <laughs> but back then there was nobody, there was maybe Birchill from over here and that was about it and he was like no 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 it'll never happen no why would they want me and all this kind of thing and and he was really like he didn't believe that he was talented really and and he is (laughs) and i truly believe to this day he's one of the the best wrestlers on the planet and hopefully he'll get whatever he needs to get sorted sorted and can either be free and tear up the indies or you know he goes back to WWE and does well there but I mean, I don't know what his situation is. I haven't talked to him for a few years. Yeah, I was just about to say, on a sidebar, do you think we will eventually see him back on... I mean, the UK scene's like 10 times hotter than when he left it, isn't it? So it would be great to see him back on, you know, wrestling all over the country. Well, it, it is, it is. I mean, how long that'll last, do we dig in the claws in? We'll see. But, you know, I I don't know. I think the, the indie scene in general, worldwide, is hotter now. Mm. You know, all in is proof of that, isn't it? And... He would be tremendous on the Indies. He'd be tremendous in Japan. I mean, can you imagine Will Osprey against Neville, or yeah. against whatever he's called, when he when he eventually escapes? It'd be phenomenal. It'd be phenomenal. He's he should never have been pegged as a cruiserweight because he doesn't look like a cruiserweight really. Mm. And I think he's impressive in the sense that he can do all this cool stuff. But he's got this really great body. He looks good. He's got a great gimmick. You know when he was when he was doing the King Neville thing, that was fantastic. I thought he was the best heel in that company. Mm. I thought he was probably the best character in that company because he was committed to it, and you could believe that he really did feel disdainful towards people. <laughs> and it maybe just turns out that it was true. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, he he'd be so wherever he lands, he'll be brilliant. He just, I just hope he doesn't waste the best years of his career as sat there fighting them. Because to me, it's like well. Either go back and just wind down your contract, so at least it's unfrozen, yeah. or reach some sort of agreement. But sitting in limbo 
forever because they can keep you in limbo forever. They've got enough money. Yeah, they they keep him there for five years to stop him going to Japan or Ring of Honor or whatever it might be. So I I don't see them letting him go at any point and agreeing to his release because they know he's too valuable elsewhere. So I think they'll just keep him there. So the only thing he can really do is go back and. And I'm sure he knows that. So if he knows that and he still doesn't want to go back, it must have been pretty bad for him. Yeah, you've got to imagine that it was. It must be bad if he's. Uh, yeah, you hear rumours that he's moved back to the UK and everything. So yeah, it must uh, must be pretty bad for him when his last few months there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the story is. But it, yeah, from the outside, it, it certainly doesn't look like he had a good time there. But um, back on to you, and um, obviously you mentioned them there um, about five minutes ago, 1PW. I mean, for those unfamiliar with 1PW, they were uh, a company set up in 2005. They were running Super Show-style events at the Doncaster Dome. Featured a whole host of like, big names such as AJ Styles, Chris Daniels, Samoa Joe. I mean, they do some pretty big houses for the time, didn't they? And they got a lot of criticism for not using a great deal of British talent on the shows, relying mainly on imports. I mean, you'd go on to have a much bigger role in the company, but the first year you were strictly in-ring talent. What was your initial memories of a 1PW, and, um, and why do you think its first incarnation of it f- um, failed? Well, it's obvious why it failed. It spent too much money and didn't make much money. <laughs> But I mean that's that's the basic basic economics of it. The first impressions were, what on earth is this? This is insane. Look at all these famous wrestlers. Why why are there twenty Americans here, mm-hmm. including a referee and a commentator, yeah. both of whom I like, mind, make no mistake, the good guys. But why? And I'm sure they'd say this to you themselves. Why were they paying to fly in referees and? You know, and commentators, whatever, it didn't make any sense at all. No. They decided that if less is more, think how much more more could be. <laughs> so, which is a line from Fraser. And <laughs> they were like, we'll just use everyone. Let's just use everyone. That'll work. And it did work for a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a couple of months. And they burned bright like a. You know, the biggest star in the galaxy and then like a supernova, they exploded in, in a quite violent fashion. And it's a shame because they had a really great venue with the Doncaster Dome and a really loyal, loud, supportive, money-spending audience who were willing to come to back-to-back shows with decent ticket prices. And they they had something, you know, they had something at that point. There's the criticism that they didn't use enough Brits. It's not true. They did use Brits. Spud got over big work in there. Johnny and Jody were pushed big. They were their first tag champs, I believe. Yeah. Doug Williams was pushed. A bunch of us were all on there. Undeservedly, I would say. Like, we didn't really deserve to be rubbing shoulders with the people we were rubbing shoulders with at the time. But that's irrelevant. The point is that we got the opportunity to do so. A lot of Brits got that opportunity. A lot of look. We were just talking about pack. That was only a couple of months in that 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 show happened mm. with with pack and with us on and and Andy Simmons. You know, was given a little push as well. You had to team a Lance Storm and you know there was guys were being used and, and their idea was if we bring all these Americans in, we'll guarantee the house and that will in turn allow the Brits to get more of by working with them been seen on the same show as them whatever it did make sense 
at that point. Like there was a logic to it, but they just went too far in the let's bring Americans in. Why not instead of bringing in twenty, maybe five, maybe six? Because at the time it was novel, so six would have done. You'd have drawn the same house as six as you would have with twenty. Yeah, and then you'd still have the other fourteen to draw upon down the line. You know, do another six, do another, whatever. And even I think six is too many. But but for that model, it would have made sense. But the, you know, so they went too fast, too quickly. The money dried up very very quickly, as it would, and it fell apart. And you saw the Americans starting to fade away, the Brits starting to increase. That was all well and good, but the crowds went down, and then it obviously collapsed with the Great Muta show. I'm sure you want to talk about that's fine but <laughs> we stepped in saved it it carried on for a bit died again started running in little social clubs that was a disaster and then it went for good until we took it over and tried to exhume it i mean uh, so, yeah just to jump in there, there. you've you mentioned the great muta fiasco obviously they tried to bring him over for a show in january of 2007 and however at this point all the money had completely run out hadn't it and i mean this is where you and uh, mike groom and stevie aaron stepped in to uh, essentially save the event um, even though you still can't bring mooter in you put on an event at doncaster down called one pw will not die and um how, how, how was that experience for you taking over sort of like the reins of another promotion and, and putting on this event that had uh, seemingly been cancelled it was a nightmare it was an absolute nightmare and i'm sure mike will tell you or has told you that it was the worst experience of his wrestling career. I didn't mind it so much, you know, but <laughs> I, in hindsight, it was interesting. It was a story. He made for a good book, I'll tell you that. Well, yeah, you know? we're, gonna, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, sorry, I mean, I, basically what happened with that was we knew the show was going to die. We found that out a week out, and we were like, Doncaster's not that far from us. That's a lot of fans who are going to miss miss out here. The tickets are already sold. It's They're not going to get refunds. So the best thing for the industry, for the British wrestling scene, would be that A show happens that day. So we contacted some of the guys, mostly the Brits, because there was no budget to do this. It was just more, let's do it for the sake of good. you know. And not only that, though, which I'll get to, but let's do it for the sake of good, but but how can we afford to do a show when there's literally no money coming in from tickets? Nothing, because they're all sold. So what do you do? You know. So we contacted the guy said, look, this is the deal. We think we should put a show on. We think we, we want you. You're going to have to work with us. We can probably afford to pay expenses, but that's going to be about it. Because we've got to do this for wrestling, not for ourselves. You know, If you don't want to do it, fine. Uh, totally understandable. And there was some uh, American guys who were already booked, so they are already had flights you know we struck deals with those i can't remember off the top of my head what those deals were there was talent shares involved and whatever else muda we couldn't afford because he was several thousands of, of pounds or dollars or whatever so and our qw stepped in to take him so great at least he had something mm. um it didn't really help japanese relations with british wrestling or on pw or whatever but at least there was something at least he wasn't just flying over and twiddling his thumbs and going on. But the other reason was we knew what it meant for 3CW as well. And those guys, whether they admit it or not, know this to be true. We knew it made 3CW look very good to be the knight in shining armor that came in, 
saved the day, and did a show in front of 1,500 people, which at the time was gigantic. Yeah. No, still is as well. Still pretty big number, it, isn't it? Yeah. It's still a big number, but a lot of promotions draw that monthly yeah. and surpass it regularly. You know, it's still good, but back then it was unheard of good, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it just didn't happen. And we had a three studio afternoon show as well, which we could promote our guys on. And it was a way of sort of us expanding what we were doing. And the idea would be that three studio would then take over the Doncaster Dome. That was Mike's idea. That was what, how Mike envisioned it in his head. I pretty much knew that was never going to happen because we didn't have the infrastructure or the resources to do that. And it was a very pie-in-the-sky idea. But in theory, that's what we'd do. But it obviously didn't transpire that way. And, you know, 1PW came back, and there was a lot of bad blood there for a long time between some parties involved. Well, I mean, you've said there, obviously, 1PW miraculously came back after the event with its um, original uh, owners intact, and then they, they ran for a while and then and then gave it up. And obviously, we'll, we'll quickfire go through this, because obviously you've noted there there's a, a really, really good book about 1PW by some guy <laughs> called James Dixon. And, uh, guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, in 2008, after uh, Stephen Gauntley walked away from it, I mean, you, along with John Cameron, Dan White, and El Laguero, of all people, decided to carry on running 1PW just in time for their third anniversary show. I mean, considering everything they'd gone on previously, I mean, what was the mindset of keeping 1PW going? And obviously you fetched Ric Flair over, you fetched Bret Hart over for an appearance. So you had some uh, pretty big shows um, during your tenure running 1PW. It was the stupidest idea <laughs> that I think I've ever had. And I'll say this now on the record, Laguerre was utterly useless. Utterly useless. He knows he was useless. <laughs> It's in the book that he was useless. Leguero is a wrestler. He's not a promoter. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's not a businessman. But what happened was we'd the, – the whole it all comes down to the fallout from that Will Not Die show. On the night of that Will Not Die show and – and I should go back a little bit further. The reason I kept getting booked in 1PW was because I was nailing the promoter's daughter. Right. <laughs> Triple H in it, yeah. <laughs> Triple H in it. And – Steve Carino was the booker at the time, and he hated it. Hated the fact he had to use me because of that. I didn't care, you know. Mm. I thought it was funny. and But you can understand why he was not amused. But So I had a relationship with Stephen Gauntley as a result of that, and he always looked after me and whatever. You know, that relationship didn't last long, and but he kept using me, and then the Will Not Die thing happened. And obviously I knew him a little bit and he got very emotional upset during the show. There was incidents backstage where he got kicked out of the locker room because he was causing aggro. Mm. He wasn't really doing anything wrong, but there was a lot of people who were a bit like, you shouldn't really be here when you're the reason we're all working for free tonight instead of getting paid. You know what I mean? So there was tension. And I remember taking him outside at one point during the show and just chatting to him. And he said, look, I've I've got a backer. I'm going to bring it back. Like, I want to bring it back. Doing this show has made... There was somebody there at the show Mm. who... Well, this is what he told me, whether it's true or not, I don't know. What he told me was there was someone there at the show who'd been part of it and was so emotionally caught up in it that they didn't want it to go away. 
so they funded it to continue. Whether that's true, like I say, who knows? But that was the story. So I knew on the night that it would be back. And I said to him, right, there's going to be a big fallout from this with you coming back. We need to stay as enemies publicly for the next five months, six months, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then let's make some money from it. Let's turn it into an angle. And and I also knew that, like, Mike was going to be annoyed. A lot of people were going to be annoyed who'd done this show. So I had to be seen as not supporting a return. I had to be against it the most. So for the next couple of months, we buried each other online. You know, I went to a, I think it was a Ring of Honor or, or a, some show at the Liverpool Olympia that he was there. And we had a confrontation there in front of the fans, right. which we'd set up in advance via texting each other. Um, and we kind of, we crossed the lines of reality and, and made people, people thought it was real. People thought it was real. There was a, now people, wrestlers to this day, ask me about this. There's a bunch of clips online where I hit fans. Every single one of those is a work. Right. Every single one of them. Pete Dunne, when I met him again for the first time in years, um, at Defiant, well, when it was WCPW, um, he was like, oh, I remember when, when you hit that fan at Triple X Wrestling. I was like, mate, <laughs> no. Like, the, the boys are just as bad. And I said, I just said to, to um, Golly, I was like, what I'm going to do is get people in 1PW shirts or people associated with 1PW in the crowd at random shows up and down the country, mm. and I'm going to deck them. You know? <laughs> so I took a trainee with me to Triple X Wrestling. It's the first time we'd done it. And he looks like a fan, the guy. He looked like a fan. You know, he didn't look like a, a wrestler. Like, it wasn't obvious that he was a plant, you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't mean that in an insulting way to fans, but he didn't look like a big, burly, muscled wrestler who was obviously... Yeah. <laughs> he looked like someone who, yeah, you could buy he was a fan. And he went in with a 1PW shirt on and he'd put a jacket over it because he'd have got heat. Um, and I'd give him some money to pay for a ticket so he was queuing up with the fans so they all thought they'd all seen him and i was like interact with the fans make sure they they know they're aware of you mm. as a fan you know and then during the match this guy started chanting oh one pw doesn't need you like it's better without you and one you you suck and chanting one pw so which which he was told to do so i went out the ring walked over him belted him you know, people use my real name, and it was like, oh man, Dragon Eyes, who hits fan. And then obviously it got uploaded to YouTube. Yeah, it's still there friend. today. It's, I think it's one of the top videos when you put a Dragon Eyes into a YouTube. Of course, because <laughs> people think it's real. And it was my friend sat in the crowd with his phone. Again, these things are pre planned. With his phone, filmed it, uploaded it under a different name so no one could link us together. And that that was that. And then I was at another show in Skegness called uh, RDW. And it was, there was a guy in the crowd who used to work or did work for 1PW, who I knew. And I texted him, I said, can I punch you in the face? <laughs> like, <laughs> you're in my match. Because I saw him from backstage. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, whatever you want. I was like, excellent. So during the match, and I talked to the promoter, and during the match, I just rolled out the ring like three or four minutes in. Walked over with him, punched him, and then just left. Just left the building. Like, I physically went backstage, grabbed my bag, and walked through the crowd. Yeah. Left. Of course, I went back around the back and back in the locker room. Yeah. <laughs> again, it was all the work. So that led to 
this huge comeback, this surprise comeback where we ran in, did this shoot angle, it took the damnation thing at 1PW. It was the best thing I ever did in wrestling in in terms of as a wrestler. This it exploded into this big company encompassing program, you know. It, it was the hottest thing in the company at that point when they were using fewer and fewer imports, more and more Brits, and then we were this hot angle that everybody wanted to be part of. And people believed it. And that was the reason, because we put all this groundwork in making it real. And there was a thread of truth to it, like a little bit from from Will Not Die and from me dating his daughter. And, you know, we brought that up in promos and whatever. And by the end of it, he was like, when he knew it was folding, he texted me and said, you've always been a strong supporter of this. You know, you've saved it before. If you want it, it's yours, because I'm done. And I was like, huh, that could be a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Who, what, how bad can it be? You know, like, it. okay, it wasn't so good when we did that will not die thing, but, eh, you know. What's well, the worst that can happen? It's <laughs> from this time. And, uh, and the thing is, the damnation thing was so hot that yeah. we wanted a blow-off. So I was like, I said to Cam, Cameron Craze, who's my tag partner in Damnation, I was like, man, we should just, maybe we should just do this just so we can have this send-off, you know, which was very egomaniacal in hindsight, but it was like, yeah, you know, if we can sell out this building, be great, won't it? We'll be promoters of this massive indie promotion. And we figured by just putting on a show at the Doncaster Dome with the 1PW initials, that was a guarantee of getting people in. Mm. And then when Flair got released and we were able to get him, we were like, oh, fantastic. We'll sell out in five minutes. We didn't sell out in five minutes. It was harder than we thought. We had completely underestimated the amount of work that used to go into those shows. And credit to Gartley and his family for the way they used to do it, but a hell of a lot of work went into those shows to get people in the building. And just having Ric Flair on the bill wasn't enough, mm. especially if he wasn't wrestling. You know, if he was wrestling sure but he wasn't and he was barely make he was barely doing anything really complete waste of money for what he did but was it like working with him though i mean like you said he'd just been released from wwe at the time so he was one of his first appearances post wwe wasn't it yeah yeah no it, it was um he was great absolute gentleman absolute pleasure uh lovely lovely guy to be around very respectful of everybody else and what we were trying to do um, it was funny when he walked in the locker room. He saw Sterling James Keenan, who's Corey Graves now, mm. and he was uh, our champion. He was one PW champion, and I remember he looked at him and then looked at us and went, "He's the champion." We're like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Wow, he's so tiny." <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he remembers that or if uh, uh, Corey Graves has fetched it up to him. <laughs> I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. He, he probably hasn't never put two and two together with the same person, but <laughs> but it was it was funny because like part of the deal with Flair was that we had to pay for his uh, his bar tab, right? And I remember we were we went back to the hotel and the show had lost a fortune. Um, we now there's there's like always a bit of dispute and controversy over this, but we were under the impression, based on the numbers of people that were in that there should have been a lot more money available to us at the end of the night than there was. And bear in mind, we were doing it on a 
we had no business plan, no budget, nothing. We were flying by the seat of our pants. We were going, right, well, the ticket money will pay for the boys and terrible way to do business. But at the time, we were like, hey, it'll be fine. We'll have 1,500 people in paying this. It'll be no problem. It didn't work out that way. There was a lot of people in. It certainly wasn't full, but there was a lot of people in. Mm. But there was nowhere near the amount of money we were expecting, which led to, like, did it get stolen? Yeah. Did people get in free? Did we just completely make a bollock of the maths? It, like, I, I honestly don't know. But all I know is we didn't have enough money at the end of the night. We're like, this is a disaster. And and it was. Like, there's nothing worse than not being able to pay everybody. And everyone got paid eventually. Eventually, you know, it took a lot of time. It was hard work, but, like, they were paid back. But after that, we were back in the hotel. And obviously, we didn't tell Flair what had happened, you yeah. know. It, it's not his concern. And Flair said to us, oh, do you guys uh, let me buy you guys a drink? And we were like, your bar tab's already two grand because he was buying 50-pound bottles of wine yeah. at the time. <laughs> um, you know, three-course meals. The works shots, and he wasn't he wasn't drunk at any point during that tour. He was just drinking for pleasure, yeah. you know. He was he was being Ric Flair, the toned down, polite version. He was with one of his fiancées at the time, so he wasn't too rowdy, you know. Um, and we were just like, man, a drink with you would be great, but that's another fifty quid that's going to go on our <laughs> And we're in the hole by a few grand at this point, so. <laughs> and so yeah it was a it was a, we underestimated how difficult it would be we tried it a little bit more we eventually got in a business um like this partnership deal with i can't remember who they were now but this this company in sheffield um end up doing this bret hart show uh which had this ridiculous name uh which we didn't name it was called steel city ice ridge total meltdown and it was named by the company we were working with because apparently it'd be sponsor friendly with the papers or something it was nonsense and we had a decent show and you know after that i was just like you know what man that's me that's me done like i'd one pw just sapped me of my energy in terms of my passion for wrestling to the point where i could no longer tolerate or stand the thought of even watching wrestling and I was like, after so long loving this sport, you know, and like it being the only thing I've I've ever really fully been passionate about, like like and really immersed myself in, I I don't want to feel that way about that. And and that's what one PW did to me. It was like I I needed to be away from it. And it took me a long, long time before I was willing to go. Right, I'm ready to get back in it now. So. Let, let that be a lesson. Promoting is, I would only advise it if you you were made up of a very specific set of, you know, a, a specific character. You have to be a very specific type of character to be a promoter, I think. And at that time, I, I don't think I was that. I don't think any of us were that. And we weren't prepared. And a few initials and a few big names aren't going to get you a big draw. That's what we learned from that one. Yeah, it does seem like it was a one PW was a big learning curve for a lot of people, and and like you say, I don't think you're the only one who uh, it sapped their uh, sort of enthusiasm and energy for the business 
So, uh, after your experience running 1PW, you uh, moved away from wrestling in the ring and started writing books under your pen name, James Dixon. I mean, obviously, we've already chatted about the first book, which was the excellent uh, book about 1PW, and then you also wrote uh, some WWF reference guides and... um, Three fantastic books about um, 95 to 98 WWF called Titan Sinking, Titan Chatter and Titan Screwed. I mean, um, obviously when you first started writing those books, that was a period that hadn't really been covered in great depth. Obviously there's tons of podcasts about that period now, but when you, re- when you started writing those books, it had not been really covered. But before we get on to those, uh, what made you want to become an author in the first place? Uh <laughs> You know, I I was sick of wrestling, as I said, and, you know, 1PW finished me off. Um, so I got away from it. I got a real job, a real, real house, real life, you know, um, and escaped it. But obviously I was still a big fan of wrestling. Um, but the 1PW thing bothered me and I felt like the story needed to be told. And I'd always, growing up, aspired to be a journalist if or a writer if I wasn't a wrestler, I took a journalism course at uni. Um, so I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just write my own memoirs on it. Just for my, not with any intention of releasing them, because I didn't think anyone would particularly care. It was more just as a cathartic experience, really, to get that out there, get the story of what happened out there on the page for me so I could get it out of my head, mm-hmm. you know, just to, to experience it that way and, and just sort of free myself of it. Um, I mean, I'm talking like it was traumatic. It wasn't really. <laughs> it's it was still it did bother me for a while, and then I was like, well, after I d- sort of wrote a little bit down about it, I was like, you know what? It'd probably make a good book to write the follow-on to Simon Garfield's The Wrestling because a lot has happened since I think it was 1995 that that came out. Yeah. So a lot have happened in that sort of 12, 13 years. So well, it might be interesting to do that. I'll write the 1PW section first and see how it goes. Um, well, the 1PW section ended up as 300,000 words. <laughs> uh, so, it, I mean, it became quite clear prior to it getting that big that it was a book about 1PW. And I thought, you know what? There is a story here. There's a narrative. There's a a warning, I guess, for other would-be promoters. So let, let's just do this book and, and see how it goes. It, it might do something. It, it doesn't really matter if it does or it doesn't. It was a hobby at the time. So, and, and that's kind of how it happened. And I just wrote and wrote and it just, it just kept coming. You know, I started interviewing people and people were willing to talk. And that was where the, the James Dixon name came because I knew that there were some people in 1PW who probably wouldn't speak to me and specifically wouldn't speak to someone who was in wrestling. You'd get the kayfabe version of events. So I thought if it looked like it was an outside writer coming in and doing this story about it, it was more likely that people would talk openly, which which ended up being the case. And the James Dixon name was one I'd used as a pen name since I was a kid. Uh, so I was just like, well, I'll use that. You know, it sounds innocuous enough. Yeah. So and and that just was how it happened, and I never really intended for it to go the way it had. Where I now have to use that bloody name when I'm writing anything because it's it's got a degree of you know fame, notoriety, however you want to describe it. People people know that name. Yeah. And, you know, but it it is what it is. Everyone in wrestling's got three or four names, so it's fine. But and that it came it came out, and I think I think it was 2012. I can't actually remember, but. 
it did pretty well. It did pretty well, and a lot of people liked it. Um, some people didn't like it, which is fine. And from that point, I was like, you know what? I'll, I can maybe make something of this. This is a fun way to be in the industry without having to take any bumps or, you know, yeah, <laughs> dramas and everything. So, and then um, I was a huge fan of WF videotapes and trying to, for my collection, trying to find out which tapes I was missing. Because I still have them all. I absolutely love them. Uh, one of my prized possessions. And, you know, trying to find out which tapes were missing was really hard because the online resources were very poor. And it turns out there's actually quite a fascinating, for me anyway, history of those tapes. And, like, you know, Silvervision or Coliseum Video got lazy at some points and just started re-releasing the bunch of matches that I already put out on 40 Minutes. It's just to get something out there. And... There's tapes that were released over here, but not in the States and vice versa and some in Germany and, you know, one random tape in France, I think. And it was really hard to get like a definitive guide to what was good, what matches were worth seeing on these tapes. So I was like, you know what? Why don't we just do it ourselves? You know, why don't I do it myself? Brought in a couple of people who I knew who felt the same way. And and it went from there. Again, it was just a hobby. Uh, They did very well. Um, so we started covering Raw as well. We were like, let's go through all the Raws, which episode of Raw is worth seeing. Yeah. And again, before the network as well. Um, so it was, you know, it was it was interesting <laughs> trying to track them down. It was hard. Uh, but, we, you know, we did and we watched through them and some of them were great. Some of them were not so great, I guess. And then after that, I was like, you know, I'd love to write a, a sort of real book, as it were, rather than a guide, just a guidebook. And I was watching Kayfabe Commentaries, um, one of their timeline shoots. And I can't remember whose it was. I think it was Jim Cornette's. Um, it might have been Kevin Nash's. I can't remember. But it was basically what those timelines, for anyone who hasn't seen them, Kayfabe Commentaries will go through an entire year yeah. in the WF or WCW or whatever with, with one person. And the whole focus of this shoot interview will be that year and things that happened to them, but also in the company as a whole. And I thought, man, this is a really interesting concept. This could be a book. Like, you could do sort of a year-by-year guide. Like, mm-hmm. what what happened in 1995 from start to finish? What was going on in the business and people's recollection of it? And, and I was like, well, maybe I'll just write a little bit. So, you know, I, I opened an empty Word document, which is both exciting and daunting at the same time. <laughs> what will it become, you know? And what it became was a book called Titan Sinking, which I'm very proud of. Um, the entire Titan series, I'm I'm rarely sort of proud of the things that I'm involved with, um, you know, because I think everything can always be better, and you know, there's always things you do differently and whatever. But those books, I'm genuinely proud of, um, because the, and again, they they did very well for me. I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing now if it wasn't for them. But they were also really fun to write. Um, and it was nice because, like you said, there was nothing really out there about that time period. It was 95, 96, 97. And when I started writing the first one, it was never supposed to be a trilogy. Uh, it didn't really have a running narrative throughout the three because, obviously, the three didn't exist. It was just one book. It was just supposed to be this is what happened in 95. Yeah. It became clear, I think, about halfway through writing it that this would need to be a trilogy. It needs to go up to the Attitude Era and that the whole – you know, the series was about the WF and specifically Vince changing his mentality when it came to what pro wrestling was for the WWF and going from this, 
you know, family friendly, very PG, very cartoony new generation promotion that it was to the Attitude Era a couple of years later. And it's such a massive shift in ethos from just over a couple of years. I mean, if you look back now, three years from now, three years backwards, yeah. as, as we're talking in 2018, if you watch something from 2015, would you know that, that it was from three years ago? You could be easily fooled into thinking it was from now. You yeah, know, exactly. Looks identical, a lot of the same guys, same kind of product, you know. Whereas from 95 to 98, the changes are striking, you know, phenomenal, actually. Oh, definitely, yeah. So it was it was really fun to write. I had a lot of fun, talked to a lot of interesting people, um, did a lot of research. And, yeah, I really I really enjoyed putting them together. Especially, I mean, I was terrified at the prospect of covering Montreal, which took, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, as you can imagine. Um, but I spoke to a lot of people who were there and got – just sort of piece together this jigsaw of what actually happened rather than Brett's version or Sean's version or yeah. Vince's version, whoever it was kind of a situation where you'd almost like detective work, you'd amalgamate a bunch of different stories and usually it'd be the one that was told the most by enough independent parties was the one you'd, you'd tend to go with or, you know, you could base it on things that were reported at the time and, and whatever else. So it was, it's quite a challenge getting to the meat and, and the facts of things, but it, it's really interesting to do. I, I really enjoyed doing them. Yeah, there's certainly uh, three fantastic books, and anyone who's not checked them out, I'd highly recommend checking them out. Sort of uh, really, and sort of there's quite a quite a lot of information in there that you you know you think you know those periods, but there's a lot of information that you you might not know as well. So definitely worth checking out. I mean, while you were yeah. while you were authoring these books, were you uh, sort of like completely out of wrestling on the British scene, or did you still have sort of like a, an eye on what was going on? No, I was I was gone. I mean, I did. I think the odd shot for three CW, which was local, um, in like, I can't even remember what years it was, uh, up until about 2013. I do about one or two matches a year, you know, just to kind of see people. Yeah, um, I had no real interest in it, you know, at all. Um, I did the last ever, uh, as it was at the time, three CW show, um, and again, I can't remember the dates. I'm terrible with dates. Um, it was I, 2013. I yeah, was it yeah. excellent? <laughs> I never forget. Um, so I did that, and a Titan, I think, came out in 2014, uh, 2013 or 2014, the first one. Um, I think it was 2014. So I was, yeah, I was completely gone by that point. The same when the second one came out. By the time the third one came out, I was just about uh, what culture and WCPW was about to be a thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, so I, I'd got back into it at that point. But it was. You know, it was very interesting and eye-opening for me as well, some of the things I found out. Like, the the one I always uh, come back to whenever people ask is in the first book, one of the stories is about Shawn Michaels in Syracuse, where he famously or infamously was attacked by a dozen Marines with weapons and whatever else. Yeah. <laughs> and I talked to the lawyer who'd represented the, the one guy that had actually beat up Sean. Um, and the lawyer actually sent me the written affidavits of Sean, um, Davy boy, uh, the, the guy himself witnesses. So I had the full, you know, picture of what actually happened from these court documents and, and it'd never been 
sort of out there before. It had never been revealed before. So it was it was really interesting to me uh, to find that and, and get hold of that. And I was quite surprised that it never come out anywhere before. And, and the whole story of it getting squashed by the WWF and them cancelling, you know, they cancelled their side of the lawsuit because they didn't want it to come out that Sean was doing things they may not want their baby yeah. fits <laughs> doing, you know. So yeah, it was it was really really interesting to do it, but it was it was nice to sort of be back involved in doing something related to the business without really being in it. But I'm also pretty sure that that gave me that sort of urge to do more. So, <laughs> so I blame books. Yeah, <laughs> well, you brought them up then, and obviously in 2016, the hugely popular website and YouTube channel What Culture started up their own. Uh, Wrestling promotion, what culture pro wrestling or WCPW for short? And so, how so you'd been out of wrestling for a few years and you'd, you'd done a few shots for uh, 3CW. I mean, how did you become in, involved in what culture? Did they did they come to you about this idea of starting up their own wrestling promotion? Because obviously, they've been doing a, a number of uh, WWE reviews and stuff via their YouTube network, haven't they? Yeah, um, so it goes back to January of 2016. And I'd, um, or maybe December of the year before, but I'd re- found a list on their website, and I won't name and shame the author, but it basically, it was uh, 10 things you didn't know had happened in the WWF in 1995, or in the new generation era. And it was basically 10 things that I'd wrote about in Titan Sinking <laughs> uh, that people didn't previously know that I'd sort of done the research on whatever, uh, which was fine, but they hadn't credited the book at all. And I was like, well, hang on a minute. you know." So I emailed them and they were like, the guy um, emailed me back and he was like, oh, look, like no offense intended, we'll absolutely plug it. Um, while we're at it, are you interested in coming to write for us? Because I read the book um, on a plane recently. I really loved it. I was like, how strange, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <Small> <laughs> and so what? So I freelanced with them for a month Um and they're only based sort of 45 minutes north of where I live. So I ended up going to the office, meeting with them, um, joining full time. And I was there for like two or three months when, I was, and I bear in mind, I'd never heard of their YouTube channel mm. or any of the guys on it. I had no idea who they were. Like, not not a clue. Because, And I don't mean that in a sort of, disrespectful arrogant way or anything i just i i was not the kind of guy at that point who watched wrestling youtube videos i just had no interest in Mm. fan opinions on wrestling you know i had enough opinions on wrestling from a million other people without that (laughs) it was an easier time a simpler time then Uh, it's different now but uh, so I went to this office and I saw their YouTube channel. I was like, man, they've got like 500,000 subscribers at that point. And I think they've got like a million and a half now, but they're about 500,000 subscribers. I was like, you know what? You guys talk about other wrestling like quite a lot. You've got you've got the uh, tools here, like the audience ready made to do your own wrestling show. Because they had their own angles and storylines on the YouTube channel Um I can't remember what the factions were called. You know, it shows how much attention I was paying. One of them was Pachidi Club. I forget what the other one was. But they were at war and feuding over this cardboard title. And, you know, it was all really silly, but but fun, like tongue-in-cheek 
fun. It was it was innocent, and mm. you know people liked it. It's like man, if people two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people are tuning in just to see videos of you guys messing around, you know, over this cardboard title. Just imagine if you had some real wrestlers in your own little building that you could run a weekly, sort of almost Memphis like weekly wrestling show. Yeah, that that was that was how I pitched it. That it'd be like Memphis wrestling, and they were like, oh well. Would it be hard to do that? Like, would you know how to do that? It's like, well, <laughs> I do have some promotion experience, funny enough. I, I, it's not something I used to, like, it wasn't something I'd told them before and that I used to wrestle and used to be a promoter and was involved in whatever. So, and they were like really interested in trying it. So that was that. It became a thing from there. And, you know, some people were very into the idea. Some people were very concerned of what it would do to the channel and, you know how it'd be perceived and that was something that we then had to battle against for for a while because like they were right a lot of people were super behind it immediately in terms of fans a lot of people were furious that we had the gall to just show up and this youtube channel's coming here and doing this wrestling promotion like little did they know that there was somebody and, and more than me as well like other people as well behind it who had a lot more experience than they did in the industry you know <laughs> so you know, a lot of other promoters even who'd probably started promoting after I left the business. So it's, you know, there's a lot of that kind of attitude goes on. People thinking they deserve things above others. And it's like, well, maybe everyone just works together. And maybe you see the side of it where introducing this huge audience to British wrestlers who they haven't seen before, it's probably a good thing, which I think, as I'm sure we'll get to, it turned out to be ultimately. Um, so, I mean, obviously we talked about 10, 20 minutes ago about how your um, passion for the business had been completely sort of wiped away by sort of like being promoting for 1PW and, and booking the shows and stuff. Was there sort of any apprehension about getting into that sort of role again? Or, or was Walt Culture a bit more stable, you know, behind the scenes than uh, what are you 1PW? Um, I wouldn't describe it that way. <laughs> <laughs> It was certainly in the sense that it wasn't my money. It mattered less in that regard. 1PW, when we were promoting it, was it was on us. If it made money or lost money, we were the ones paying out. Hmm. This was a big company, you know, that turned over a lot of money through its website and its YouTube channel and, and various merchandise that they sold and, and whatever else. Uh, so they could afford to take a little risk because it was at first a little risk um it, it didn't cost them a great deal of money to put on those first shows so no i, I wasn't apprehensive i was actually by this point it, i'd been out of the business in terms of promoting and and being involved in it full-time for about seven years so you know i was that was enough to seven year rich and whatever you know it was like <laughs> the first seven year rich i was i'd had seven years away i, I was ready to to do something again. I did miss it. Like I'd, I saw guys that I'd trained or, tra- or trained with or wrestled against like, you know, Martin Kirby and, and Leguero and, you know, a, b- a bunch of others like doing really well for themselves. And I saw that British wrestling was, was doing well. Like I hadn't really in truth followed it a great deal when I'd been away. So I didn't know what progress or rev pro or ICW were really other than hearing the names until I saw got involved again i knew some who some guys were um but i i took myself completely out of it i didn't want to 
know anymore. So it was kind of a learning experience as well at that point to re-immerse back into the scene. And, and it was like, man, this the scene's actually pretty damn hot. Was there any, I mean, you mentioned a, a number of promotions there, and obviously they'd build up quite a, a big audience uh, for each of their individual promotions. Did you find any backlash from any of the UK promotions when uh, What Culture started up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, they didn't like us existing within what they felt was their bubble, and, you know, I, they didn't like that we were using certain guys, that we were automatically given this head start by having this big audience and we hadn't had to work for it, you know, and whatever else. It's like, well, that is true, but at the same time, get with the times, you know, realize the kind of world we live in now where that that's how things work. Things can explode overnight and become a fad and become become big and appear out of nowhere. And, and that's fine. You, you don't, because the people who are saying it, I can guarantee the people who are saying it didn't go through the same sort of tribulations and you know earning of one's stripes as i did when i came through and everybody else who came through at the same time as i did as well like it wasn't an easy business to get into once over so and you know i, I won't name specific promotions or their specific reactions because i don't think it's it's fair to but you know for most for all of them in fact the promoters involved got into the business many years after I did. So I, I mean I thought it was I thought it was nonsense. And granted, they maybe didn't know that and it, well almost certainly didn't know that and just thought it was these guys on YouTube setting up a promotion. <laughs> but it but it wasn't. And I should point out as well that the guys on YouTube had very little, if anything, to do with it in terms of putting it together. It wasn't their idea. It wasn't then then not the owners, the managers, whatever, the promoters of what culture are WCPW as it as the promotion was, they simply worked for what culture and were part of the show, you know. So yeah. a lot of the blame got put on those guys, and that that put a strain on them as well. You know, that put a big strain on the Adams and and Co. Um, because anything that WCPW did that was perceived as wrong or unacceptable or that people didn't like, whatever it might be, they were the ones because they were the public faces that took the heat and. It was kind of unfair on them, but at the same time, it comes with the territory of you're going to be the face of something, then you you take the bad with the good, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, you mentioned that um, the sort of like Adam Pachitis and a few of the on-screen personalities uh, took a lot of the blame. I mean, the the first few shows, they had uh, some good houses, very slick production values, and obviously used a host of British and import talent. And um, But, I mean, some fans were critical of the earlier shows, saying they focused more on the personalities rather than the wrestlers. I mean, do you think that was a fair critique of the first sort of uh, what culture shows? It, it was a fair critique and a very um, close-minded and blinkered one at the same time because it's almost a catch-22. Without the YouTube guys, none of the YouTube following are going to watch. Mm. Without the, you know, but with the YouTube guys, the wrestling audience isn't going to watch either. The people who just want to see the wrestling don't want to see, you know, Adam and Adam fighting over a cardboard title. And I understand that completely. But again, it's, it comes back to you've got to kind of roll with the punches and go with what the majority want. And the majority did want to see those YouTube guys in a wrestling ring and interacting with real wrestlers and being part of storylines. And, and I would argue that Adam Blompier, for example, 
was one of the best promos in the entire business immediately. He was tremendous. He he did a promo battle, I guess is the way to describe it, with Eric Bischoff um, a couple of shows in, and it was superb. And Bischoff's a great promo. And he held more than held his own with him. He held his own with Damien Sandow. You know, he was excellent. He was really, really excellent. And you know what? The guy was a genuine star. I remember going to WWE shows with him. And I think that's actually, to sort of go back a little bit, partly where the idea came from as well. It was quite quickly after I joined What Culture, I went to a WWE house show in Newcastle with a bunch of the guys who worked there. And like I said, I didn't really know who these YouTube guys were in in terms of them being famous, quote-unquote, you know. But when I went to that show with them, they were mobbed especially Adam, like they were absolutely mobbed. People were surrounding them. People wanted to take pictures of them. I was like, man, this is absolutely crazy. Like what's, what's this business become? You know, that these guys who talk about wrestling on YouTube are bigger stars than most of the guys who wrestle on the British scene. So by the same tone, I was like, well, again, let's start this promotion. That might be a good idea. And let's see if we can get the British guys, the rub from interacting with them. And that was the whole point. That was why they were there. It was, Get eyes on the product. They'll come for these guys, but they'll stay for the wrestling. That was always the mentality. And for a while, I, I 100% believe that that worked. 100%. Like, people were tuning in. Martin Kirby became a big star across the world. I've been around the world with him. I've been to America, Germany, and Canada with him. And in every one of those, he gets a huge reaction because they've seen him on YouTube. And a lot of that of his popularity came from it, his interactions with Adam Pacini and same with Blompier, you know, he had a match with, with rampage that did really well um, on pay-per-view and things like that. And it, it definitely helped the guys. It definitely helped a lot of those guys become names that they might not otherwise have been. And believe me, WWE certainly were taking notice because you can look through that historical WCPW roster and it's staggering how many guys are now under WWE contract. So, you know, they obviously thought there was something to it. Yeah, definitely. Martin Kirby is somebody who uh, should, should have been seen on a worldwide stage. So it's good that he got featured in WCPW. But, um, I mean, as the, as the company got bigger, I mean, you featured some huge matches with the likes of Cody Rhodes, Kurt Angle, and then you had uh, your Will Ospreay's Martin Kirby's having fantastic matches. I mean, you kind of moved away from your home base of Newcastle running all over the UK in places such as Milton Keynes, and a YouTube series was racking up hundreds of thousands of views, as you've already noted. I mean, it must have been a, a crazy time sort of behind the scenes putting all these massive shows on. I mean, what are some of your favourite memories of these uh, big what culture shows that got put on? Um, it was it was very fast, everything that happened. It just happened, you know. It was just like a roller coaster. And it was one thing after another. It was like, right, let's do back-to-back. Let's do a different city. Let's do use this guy and this guy. And, like, a brand-new promotion shouldn't be headlining a 2,500-seat venue and selling it out um, with Kurt Angle in the main event and Bret Hart on the undercard. Well, not, not wrestling, but, you know, on the show and Minoru Suzuki and the car and whatever within the first four months of its existence, which you can see why people criticized it for that. But at the same time, it sold out that building. So people obviously did want to come and see it. So there's two sides to that kind. But it was it was pretty crazy. Um, for me, it was too crazy 
in the sense that I could see the same mistakes that one PW had made coming back all over again. And so this is this is kind of how it went down. At first, nobody in the office knew any British wrestlers outside of maybe a handful of ICW guys. Mm. The people who made the decisions, of which there were two, um, and again, I won't name them, but like the two people who made the decisions, who were the, the real bosses of what culture, most people won't even know, they hadn't seen British wrestling before. They knew WWE guys. That was about it. Um, so at first, the roster was mine. It was the people that I booked. I talked to, like, Kirby, like I said, he's someone I trained, someone I'd like, someone I wanted to be part of it. So I brought in Kirby. Liggs I'd known forever. Rampage, I'd never worked with him previously because he came back from the States after I was done, but we'd met. Yeah. I liked him. I got well with him. I, was, I wanted to use him. Um, and then I would ask those guys who they recommended because, like I said, I'd been out of the business and not really following the British scene. And they'd recommend guys. Kirby recommended Joseph Connors. Joseph Connors recommended Gabriel Kidd, Alex Gracie, Lucas Archer. Um, Rampage recommended Primate and uh, H.G. Drake. That that kind of thing. You know, Joe Henry was, got involved. Um, and then some other guys from ICW came came down. And all of a sudden we had a, had a roster. And at first it was easy because they deferred to me because I was the only one who'd done it before. So that was fine, and it was it was easy enough. For, it was all good. Then they desperately wanted Damien Sandow when he got released. So I made some calls to uh, Tom Pritchard, who, I, who I'm good friends with, because um, I'd actually, also while writing the Titan books or between them, I'd been working on him on his with with him on his autobiography, right? Which which hasn't come out yet. Um, it will one day when we're done. <laughs> we're not happy with it yet, but. You know, we, we've been working on it a long time. Um, and so we'd become good friends. And he trained Damien Sandow. So I asked him to put in a word because nobody could get hold of Sandow. He wouldn't work for anybody. He didn't really want to even wrestle anymore. He was genuinely done with wrestling. Yeah. So, But because it was a favor for Tom, he agreed to do it. And then I remember him saying to me actually on the show, like, you know, like thanking me or, or blaming me. He actually came up to me and said, I hate you. I was like. Well, that's good, you know. <laughs> He's, I was like, "Why? What's what's happened?" He said, "No, no, like, I was done with wrestling, but but being here, you know, has made me change my mind." And and then he signed for Impact, and then he kind of cursed me in different ways because it didn't turn out so well for him there. But no. <laughs> you know, but but we actually reignited his passion for it, and and stuff like that was great, and it was a lot of fun. And so you know, I'd got I'd got them sand out and managed to get them off spray and. A bunch of other guys and then as it went on it kind of became right well tickets aren't selling as fast for this one as they are for the first one because the first one sold out in like a day or something yeah. because it was not and new and a 300 capacity building or something as we were getting bigger and bigger it was like well this one's not quite selling the same way we need somebody else somebody else somebody else and i'm like you can't keep just having somebody else somebody else because very quickly there'll be nobody yeah which is how it is now and, you know, if you keep just using two, three, four, five guys, it goes back to what we were saying about, you know, 1PW. If you use that many guys, it's it's too many. You've got nothing left. And I think the peak really was the Kurt and um, Cody show 
which was in Manchester, the two and a half thousand seater. And it was amazing to see that level of crowd and those people there for this, you know, brand new promotion, just that exploded into life. Very quickly, WWE started paying attention and signed a bunch of the guys. They came into the UK. You know, that all happened in the January. You know, it launched in the June of 2016. That happened in the sort of December, January. They took Joe Connors because he was WCPW champion, you know, without a doubt. And it started to get more and more difficult. We lost talent here and there. Then we lost Drew and then we'd lost demo and it it became harder so but then as it went on at the same time behind the scenes the people who previously didn't know anything about wrestling british wrestling now felt like they knew enough to dictate what was happening which led to a lot of silly ideas silly booking silly people and random people and it it just became a hodgepodge. It became a mess. There was too many cooks. There was too many voices. And we would spend hours and hours and hours in a meeting room in the office going through what the next week's card was going to be or the next month's card was going to be. But there was no end game. There was no like, well, we need to build to the pay view. It was just like, how can we get the most people in and the most people watching this next show? It was very short-sighted. And then the frustration was that after this, these meetings things had then overnight changed when one of the owners decided that he'd, he'd get a, he'd get a hunch it'd be something like that he'd get a hunch oh i don't think this is going to work and it'd be like well based on what and yeah, i just don't think it will <laughs> and, it, and it was almost like vince mcmahon syndrome like he'd read about how vince acts where he just changes thing on the fly yeah. so he decided that's how you have to act as a promoter and that became very frustrating and increasingly difficult to work with to the point where eventually that that led to us all all leaving but you know that we, I, I guess we'll get to that but yeah i mean the, the highlight though i mean seeing being able to do kurt angle and joe henry which was joe henry's dream match because joe's a very good friend of mine as well now um so being able to sort of do that match on pay-per-view as well with jim ross calling it it was and jim connor it was phenomenal um to to be able to like let somebody live their dream you know and achieve achieve a life goal and things like that were always really cool seeing like the rise of guys like gabriel kidd and martin kirby and and primate and and loads of other guys who were there from the start who became stars started to get booked elsewhere became known um many guys who've since ended up on on world of sport as well which i'm i'm sure was helped by being part of WCPW. So yeah, there's been a lot of satisfying things, but it was very much like one PW, a star that burned very bright, very quickly, and quite soon faded because it, you know, too much all at once. With um, with also some of the problems came about when YouTube changed their uh, sort of like advertising thing and decided that wrestling was one of the things that shouldn't be getting as much advertising money, or that, or it was something along those lines, wasn't it? Uh, it was a convenient excuse. Yeah. It was a convenient excuse at the time. Um, I think the effects of that were overstated. I don't know the inner workings fully of what happened with YouTube and and how it affected them financially. Um, 
I believe it did affect some videos and some things that were going out there, but at the same time, you just need to look at the numbers and watch from sort of June when it started to the following June in 2017, which is when the the YouTube uh, thing changed. And you can see that the numbers are going down and down and down each time anyway. Hmm. And on the show where Adam Blompier cuts this impassioned speech about YouTube and about wrestling being entertainment and not violent and all this kind of thing, if you actually look at that footage, that show's half empty anyway. It's a tiny little building. The draw was terrible. I don't know what it was. I don't know why it didn't draw. It just it didn't. And the attendances were dropping anyway. The views were dropping because, like anything that's a fad, it's the novelty wears off. It used to be interesting to see these YouTube guys. Now it's commonplace. It's like when someone gets called up from NXT to the main roster, and at first they're like, man, how great's this? I'm I'm never going to miss some more John Raw, mm. you know. But then after three weeks, you're like, well, he's just the same as everyone else now. He's he's got the same bad writing to contend with. He's got the same, you know, one segment per show, and that's your lot. And you know, the same overly long matches with non finishes or whatever it might be. And then in week four, you're like, well, I'll maybe catch Raw if I'm not busy, you know. Yeah. And it, that's kind of what it became. It's and that's not. The product was good, and I would always defend the the actual shows. I think the shows themselves, the storylines, not always. Some of the angles and things were, were silly. Some of them were good. The wrestling, though, was always good. The guys are talented. The guys on that roster were always talented. And I don't think you could ever discredit the wrestling. And so, you know, in that, yeah, it's, it, it was it was an interesting you know, year, year and a half ride. That's the way I describe it. It moved very fast and a lot changed very quickly. Obviously, one of the big undertakings in the final year of uh, WCPW was the uh, What Culture World Cup. This was a a tournament spanning seven months, holding events in the UK, Germany and Canada, featuring talent from all over the world. Uh, The final actually culminated over three nights with uh, Kushida winning the whole thing. I mean, I really enjoyed the finals. It featured a fantastic match between Will Ospreay and Mike Bailey that's uh, still spoken about today. And this must have been a huge undertaking. I mean, what was the thought process going into this? And uh, it must have had some uh, big bumps and hurdles uh, pulling off such a <laughs> massive tournament. <laughs> so the person tasked with making this a reality was me hmm. because I was always the guy who got them the talent, um, who, who booked the guys, dealt with the guys, contacted the guys, the agents, whatever else. So that was one of my main jobs other than sort of running the shows with others on the day. And, you know, booking them in advance with a team. And there was talk in early 2017 that one of the owners was fed up of the wrestling because he likes to exercise a certain degree of control over the things he's involved in, be it what culture on the website, YouTube, the various different aspects of it, whatever. It's his company. Fine, that's that's up to him, you know. If he wants to be a control freak about it, that's fine. But with wrestling and wrestlers, who he never dealt with face-to-face, ever, sometimes in wrestling, things don't always go exactly the way you plan them. And sometimes the wrestlers will hear an idea and refuse to be part of it, refuse to do it, have their own suggestions, you know, offer different opinions. And... 
for things to work, all parties have to be on the same page. The, the bookers, the owners, and the wrestlers. You know, you've all got to be fighting towards the same goal. So I knew it was pointless fighting the wrestlers on things that they were really opposed to, you know, really adamant and opposed to. Yeah. So sometimes we change things. And the owner didn't like that because, again, like I say, he wasn't in control of it. So there was talk that he was getting fed up and he was going to can the promotion. And this was maybe seven months in. Um, so at that point, we're like, okay, well, that's probably a mistake. It's going to look very bad. It's going to reflect very badly on the company as a whole to do that. Um, but, you know, again, whatever. So we had a meeting, and what he suggested in this meeting was that we needed some new concept. And I guess he'd just seen the Euros a couple of months earlier because um, he's a big football fan. And he said, well, wouldn't it be cool if, like, there was a proper wrestling World Cup where there was qualifiers in every country, which was the original plan, and then the finals – took place and brought everyone together and it was over like several days and I was like right <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out we needed 64 guys and I was like right then where are we going to get them from so <laughs> so my job became compiling shortlists of different wrestlers, different countries which countries would feature do we count Wales as its own country? Do we count Scotland as its own country? Do we do it as Britain, which will be easier? Are we going to limit ourselves to talent? Are we going to cost ourselves more money? You know, do we do the American show in America? Do we do it over here? Oh, how, how on earth are we going to run shows in Japan and Mexico? Those were all questions that I didn't have answers to at that point yeah. um, and had to figure out. And what resulted was sort of seven or eight months of constant meetings and about this bloody world cup <laughs> and ultimately the world cup was as a tournament phenomenal but as a in in terms of the effect it had on wcpw's main product and it's you know it's it's typical shows it was massively detrimental it, it really hurt it because the, the focus wasn't there on the on the homegrown guys on the regular roster on the regular shows it was all about this this World Cup. And, you know, we, we put it together. It was very difficult because what you had to do was you had to get the talent available for the qualifier, but they also needed to be available for the finals times eight because there was eight qualifiers. Yeah. So that was hard work, especially if you wanted top quality and you needed guys who were going to be able to draw at the back end of the tournament you know, as well as in the individual qualifiers. So when people are like, oh, I can't believe it wasn't this guy who went through. Well, it's because they weren't available on those days. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it was. And that's that's almost always what it was if something like that didn't make sense. And we ended up, um, did a show in England, which is an English qualifier, obviously did a, one in Scotland. People didn't really get the concept when we were doing the qualifiers. The, the sort of, followed it to a point but it people weren't hugely into it now i think it was quite groundbreaking and nothing like it had ever been done before on such a, a large scale but it was you know it was difficult to to get people to fully invest in it because yeah. they wanted to see the storylines and characters that they were used to not 
this random guy from Hungary or this random guy from you know wherever and it which is a shame because there were talented people that we had in it and it was a chance to use new people and several of whom became regulars um for us like Mark Davis for example of, of Aussie Open no one knew who he was we were the first person like promotion over here to book him um we booked him on a show and then we booked him on another one in the qualifier and you know, from there he sort of exploded with along with Kyle. But, you know, it was a chance for guys like him and Mike Bailey as well as another. And, you know, to sort of see these people and go, man, like, let's let's use them more regularly. And we, we went to Germany, we went to Canada, and we decided that the budget just really wasn't there to do another show in America because there was negotiations at one point to run at the Hammerstein Ballroom. Right. Um, and then there was talk of running the ECW arena. But we'd been to America in April over Mania, and we felt there wasn't really a, a an urge to go back, like with the audience either. We didn't feel we'd, it'd be worth going over there just for the sake of going over there. Mm-hmm. It was probably easier to just bring the guys here. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we did. Uh, same with Mexico, um, same with Japan, and same with the rest of the world, because, I mean, where were you going to host that i mean there was at one point we had an offer to host it in malaysia and another one for australia but ultimately it would have just cost to get our crew over and our equipment and everything would have cost a fortune so you know we so we didn't but then it all came together in the in the finals a few guys pulled out drew had to pull out because he was signed so we had to you know put somebody else in and then it was kind of the same deal with uh, michael elgin qualified in canada but then pulled out at the last minute because he had new japan commitments or cmll commitments i think it was um and uh, so what happened with that was we went back and forth over who could it be and i ended up calling regal and saying look i know your guys can't work for us but you're not doing anything with joe connor's at the moment and you're not launching this show anytime soon <laughs> uh, we've kind of been screwed over here by you know bookings elsewhere can we use joe we'll put him over he'll go over ring of honor and new japan guys so you're gonna look good um so like and that's and that was kind of and he was like look i'll ask the question and they were like to their credit they they did they came through they said yeah okay you guys use him just look after him you know is that well well of course we will like it was like don't put him in a position where he'll get in trouble Right, yeah. No, no intention of doing that, you know. So, and that that actually asked me earlier what my favorite moment was, because we we hid Joe um, for the show. We didn't announce the replacement, and we just said it'll be a mystery guy. And the reaction when Connors came out in Milton Keynes, there's like a thousand odd people there or something, twelve twelve hundred people, I think it was. The reaction when he came out as a surprise was just one of one of the best things I've ever been part of in wrestling. It was, it gave me goosebumps. I stood in the crowd because I knew what was coming, obviously. I stood in the crowd for that and just like experienced it with them. And it was great. I absolutely loved it. And Joe deserved it. Well, um, obviously, that was a huge undertaking. It sounded like there was tons went into it. And yeah, I agree. Joe Connors got a huge reaction when he came back. So he was one of sort of the big stars for uh, WCPW, wasn't he? But, um, I mean, following on from the World Cup, it was announced by uh, 
what culture that a lot of their on-air talent and personalities who had been so popular on YouTube would be leaving the company. You had Adam Blampier, Adam Pacitti, King Ross, Sam Driver and uh, Jack the Drobber all left to form uh, the website Cultaholic. I mean, what happened here and why why was this mass exodus from the company? Um, We all knew even before the World Cup that we were leaving. Um, we, We weren't happy with one of the owners is great. The other one, as I say, was a bit of a control freak. Uh, we all felt like we couldn't work under that anymore, and we were sick of being undermined. Um, for example, in terms of just WCPW, what another one of the best things I think we ever did was finally giving Martin Kirby that big win um, when we had him win uh, the Rumble in 2017 and, and win the championship. Uh, we were forced into that, really, because Drew was on NXT. He joined yeah. NXT. Now, we'd had Drew on that, that morning, the morning of NXT in America, in Florida, um, and he'd defended in the main event against Rampage. He was the champion, and it was all good. He got a call sort of that day, that morning, or that afternoon, to meet with Triple H, and they, they met, obviously reached a deal, and he texted me about 10 minutes before he appeared on camera and just said, look, you're about to see something. <laughs> Please don't freak out. It's all good. It's, I've sorted it. And I'm like, well, that could only mean one thing. So, And then sure enough, there he was. But I did and always will appreciate and respect the fact he, he took the time, even though he was obviously crazy busy at the time, to, to at least tell me first and give me the heads up. So that it tells you what a good guy Drew is. Yeah. But what what then happened was like, right, can we use him again? And it was like, yes, you can use him again. So, okay, because bear in mind, this was the third. We'd had three champions and all three of them had now been signed. Yeah. Like WWE. So what what do we do? Because we'd had no intention of taking the belt off Drew at any point soon. You know, he was an incredible champion for them. Um, he, he definitely drew. He had amazing matches. I think the best match we ever did was Drew and Will Ospreay uh, for the title. And it was like, right, what, what do we do here? So we knew we had this 30-man rumble coming up. So we were like, well, let's make the match for the title. And WWE let us use him to, you know, to drop the belt. So the argument then became one part of the office, which was this manager, wanted joe henry to win the belt and the rest of us said that's a bad idea because joe's joe's a heel now it's going to be super flat to end it like that you know why not give the fans a big moment first but then take it away from them like always get always build them up and then take them down rather than they're already down from drew going don't take them down again you know, so let's have Kirby finally hit his Zoidberg elbow. Let's have him last from number two, I think he was in the Rumble. Let's have him go right to the end with Drew and then with Joe there as well. It looks like Joe's going to win. And then he hits this move, finally gets the pin. And, and when we did that, you know, we had to fight for that. Like really me and all the guys who left, we all felt that that was the way to go. Because the idea was that we take it off Kirby the next night anyway which we did but 
and then do the same thing, but at least you give them that moment, that taste of it, you know? So we had to really fight it. And I remember having a conversation where I was just like, look, if why would you hire the best plumber in the world? And I'm not saying I'm the best booker in the world before, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But why would you hire the best plumber in the world, second guess any of his plumbing-based decisions, and then just go, you know what, just do my electrics instead? You know, because that's kind of how we all felt. We're like, you've got this group of creative people and people who, who know the business, know the guys, know whatever, and you're not listening to us. If we all feel so strongly in this one direction, then maybe you need to compromise back down and go, okay, I trust you guys to do it. But that wasn't how he were. Compromise was a word alien in his dictionary, you know? <laughs> so, and and I'm not saying it to be harsh. That's just how it is, you know? Some people are like that, whatever. And we had to really, really, really fight to the point where, of frustration. And then from that point onwards, it just became a constant struggle. Everything was a battle then. And by the time of the World Cup, we we were all just, we'd had enough. And I actually left first before any of those guys. I just did it without any of the public fanfare. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because the thing is, behind the scenes, nobody really knew that I was involved anywhere, which is fine. It's the way I wanted it to be, specifically, you know. I, I do not need either the adulation or the criticism that comes with that job. I was quite happy to be behind the curtain and and still am. But so I'd left what culture where my official job was, I was a writer for the website or something or, or their magazine and whatever the official job was head of publishing. I think it was. So like that was my real job. But so I, I left that and left the office and stopped working for them. Um, at the back end of either August or September. Uh, and then they left a couple of days later. I think they'd been planning on leaving later than they did. Something happened, you know, it's, that's their business, but they ended up leaving as well. Um, and and that was that really in terms of, you know, it, it was very different after that. Now, I'm, and I'm sure we'll talk about Defiant and, and everything, uh, which I am still involved in, but... Yeah, that's kind of how it went down. And it was it was nothing really to do with the promotion. It was nothing to do with a lot of things. It was all down to most of us didn't want to work with this this one guy anymore because we we couldn't get on with the way he did business and other people can. And that's fine, you know, like each to their own and and more power to them for being able to do that. But and I wish what culture in general, no ill will, I should should point out. I know. I know some of those guys when they left were quite critical and others others have been as well. They were good to me, you know. I had a lot of fun for a long time doing WCPW. I have fun to this day doing Defiant, but and and had a lot of fun making matches and whatever for them. So like No, it was the right time to go. So, I mean, you mentioned them there, Defiant. They seem to grow out of the ashes of uh, WCPW. So uh, how did you become involved in that? Obviously, you mentioned a lot of the problems you had with uh, with what culture. So uh, how did Defiant uh, form and how did you become involved with uh, Defiant Wrestling? So the, the idea to change the name came about while we were all still there. And it was this, this one man again who decided that he'd read one I believe he'd read one forum post or something or one Reddit thread 
where someone had asked the question, um, have you seen the latest WCPW show? And the answer was, no, I refuse to watch it because it's just a YouTube promotion or it's just full of YouTube guys. And he decided based on that, that that was the consensus opinion of every wrestling fan and that people weren't checking out the promotion and all the top talent we had because of the perception of it. And he felt that the name WCPW, as in, you know, what culture pro wrestling was what was putting people off and no one took it seriously as a re- so no one would, would rank it as a wrestling promotion alongside the likes of progress or rev pro ngw or whoever you, you might want to pick it was the feeling was that we were perceived as illegitimate if if you if you will yeah and the, there was names bandied around um we all felt like the fact that we were what culture pro wrestling was our biggest strength and the reason people tuned in in the first place was because of that and the reason we were different was because we had these YouTube guys. And, you know, nobody else had that. That was our unique selling point. You know, we, we had this website. We had this YouTube channel. We had all of these assets that, believe me, if the other promotions could have had those things, they would have had those things. You know, they most promote – and I'm sure they, they would deny wanting them, but if they had the chance, they would certainly have them. Mm. Of course, they, why wouldn't you if they were bringing you – fans in and drawing your money so we were overruled which was another frustration um the decision was made to change it so it was you know everybody was asked everyone had opinions no one was particularly happy with anything and it ended up that by the time the change it was already in the works to change it but by the time we left it hadn't quite changed and then it got announced that it was getting changed just after we'd all left and a lot of people put it down to that, but that it was just convenient timing, really, um, in in that regard. And you know, I do see a degree of logic in the reasoning behind it because Defiant truly is separate from what culture now. It wasn't then, but it is now. And I think people maybe do give it a bit more of a chance than they, than they would have previously. But at the same time, it's also got far reduced audience than they had previously because it's not got that the power of the what culture channels behind it. So, you know, it's it's one of those so difficult situations. Do you do you do it or don't you do it? Like, is a rebrand necessary or, or isn't it? And I guess people make their own decisions on that. But but that's how it came about. And in terms of my involvement in it, when I left, the the other manager said, "Look, obviously you've been a major part in." these shows and them actually happening you know (laughs) specifically the running of them could you stay on on a a freelance independent basis not working for what culture not going to the office nothing like that where you just come to the shows and like you know be available for conversation advice whatever here and there but come to the shows and and we'll do it that way and i was like you know yeah because i have no ill will towards you one of the biggest things or reasons stopping me from leaving what culture for a few months had been the fact that I, I didn't want to give up doing those shows because I did enjoy them. Yeah. I did enjoy doing them. And, you know, and I like him. So, and I like a lot, you know, almost everybody I would say at that office, like if not everybody. So I was like, you know, why, why would I want to not be part of that? Like I have no ill will here. It's just, I just don't want to work here full time. And you know what? It was also, I don't particularly like 
wasting two hours a day sat in a car. No. <laughs> you know, driving there and back. It's a, for, for, for no particular reason, for things I could do at home. So there was, there was other factors as well. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll happily do that. I'll, I won't be involved in the booking um, or, or contacting talent. You guys do that yourself, but I'll turn up, give me this, you know, your scripts or whatever it is that you're doing, your cards, and I'll make what you have put on the paper happen on this, in the ring and on the screen. And it worked like that for a bit. And then it, it kind of changed behind the scenes and I got a little bit more involved in, in the booking and, and whatnot again. And, yeah, it's been it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. I've I've enjoyed being part of it, and I'm still very proud of much of the stuff that uh, we put out there. Yeah, but you've certainly had some uh, fantastic events over 2018, and like you say, it seems to be a lot more solid. But whereas what culture seemed to sometimes be a bit all over the shop, as you noted um, earlier. But um, I mean, one of the big things that sort of like comes out of a uh, Sort of like when you talk about Defiant Wrestling, obviously we've heard from uh, Red Pro owner Andy Quilden on his podcast saying that UK wrestlers with WWE contracts such as sort of like your Pete Dunne's Tyler Bates can't appear at their events and it's been heavily rumoured from the likes of Dave Meltzer that uh, the same applies to Defiant and uh, what culture before it. I mean, you mentioned some interactions you had with uh, William Regal and WWE. I mean, is it frustrating for you guys not being able to book some of these bigger new name UK stars on your shows? Oh, when they've, when they've been regulars for us for a long time, absolutely. You know, El Liguero, or Liguero as he is now, um, had been on every show. He'd been on every show. Um, to not be able to use him anymore was a real, you know, it was a real shame. Um, Travis Banks, a regular for a long, long time. We were using Travis and featuring him quite well um, before most others were. And, you know, before he had his real breakout year with, with progress. And, you know, so, yeah, it is frustrating. Joseph Connors was our champion we were pushing him to the moon he was our top heel he was going to keep that belt for a, a long time you know he was going to be the guy we built the company around and they s- snatched him up just because they wanted him and they didn't want us to have him so <laughs> you know and and that's that's not fair because they, they snapped him up because he's an incredibly talented wrestler but that is certainly part of it you know and i'm i'm sure you know, one day he would admit the same if he's ever able to, you know. But, yeah, it definitely played a role. Or at the very least, his exposure with WCPW opened their eyes to him fully, you know. And it, it is frustrating. Like, it, it started immediately. You know, it started immediately. As soon as those guys had signed their contracts, all four of them at the time, which was Joe Connors, Pete Dunne, Tyler Bate, and Trent Seven, were pulled from the WCPW show at Liverpool Olympia, which was Kirby Mania in January 2017. And that was annoying, um, especially when it had been specifically stated that there was sort of... No restrictions, that was it. Restrictions, yeah. That one annoyed us. But I think when that was said, that was the company line, in in fairness to Regal. Um, When they realised sort of the size or I think it was when I assume it was when someone in the office at WWE realized the size of the potential WCPW audience and saw the size of the YouTube channels and realized that they'd rather it just kind of went away. You know? So <laughs> and again, I'm hypothesizing. 
but I assume that's what it was because they were certainly still allowed to work for other promotions that had distribution. And I don't mean Progress, I don't mean ICW because they've got deals with WWE of, of some description, but other promotions were still allowed to use these guys. And we ended up, as people who follow WCPW would know, like Connors was on that show, we did make a deal with Regal to get him one last time and wrap up his story. Um, but that was it. And then anybody that got signed, that was it. They were no longer available. So, yeah, it's frustrating. Um, in all of these cases, I've had a heads up over who's going to be signed. You know, it, it helps to be a journalist as well as being yeah. involved. <laughs> so, you know, I have had a good idea of what's going to happen. And we've been able to plan accordingly. Um, but at the same time, it gives us, it gives other guys the opportunity to come in yeah. and make a name of themselves. Like the most recent Defiant shows as we speak were the Ringmaster Tournament. Um, and the whole point of that tournament was to bring in guys we hadn't used before uh, or guys we hadn't featured heavily before and give them the chance to go for it and see see what they could do. And everybody in that tournament stepped up. There was guys like El Fantasmo who you know blew people away um omari was was fantastic you know guy guys came in and really worked hard and it there's so much talent in this country that you can't use the excuse wwe've got what 30 odd guys under contract from the uk that's fine there's plenty of talent there's a lot of talent you know just look at the, the world of sport roster and then look at the guys who aren't on either roster like mark haskins you know mm. jimmy havoc uh, Damien Dunn there's, there is tons of guys available so it's just a case of finding them pushing them in the right way utilising them in the right way putting them in the right matches so it's quite it's quite a fun challenge actually to go from you know like because it's very easy to rest on your laurels like with Leguero like I said we'd had him for almost every show maybe that was it for him maybe we were done there you know what else could you really do with him he'd been face he'd been ill Maybe it was a good time for him to disappear and for someone else to to step into that role, you know. So it's it's frustrating. I do kind of understand it. Um, Andy and Rev Pro got away with it for a, a year or so, being able to see the guys. It's probably going to end up now. You've got to feel that when NXT UK launches properly in terms of when they start airing it and whatnot, they're going to start coming down on guys working elsewhere because – that's just what they do. Like, how often have you seen WWE work well with others for too long? It's it's never ended well historically. So, you know, they tried it with AAA. They tried it with Super World of Sport. They tried it with their own, as Jim Cornette would tell you, that they screwed OVW countless times and they owned it. So they, they, look what they did to WCW and ECW, which they also own. They do not like other promotions. So... <laughs> They're not. They're not going to let guys work elsewhere forever, and it's already started. You know, they've issued this directive that guys can't work uh, anywhere else in the week leading up to a taping, in case they get injured. And I, I can't criticise them for that because, hey, it's their property, it's their talent who they pay, so they want them available for these tapings and not injured. They don't want to find out the day before that one of the guys that we're going to feature heavily is now injured now for five months or whatever. So. I do understand it, but for a lot of promotions, it's going to become equally frustrating, I think. 
Does it does it make it hard for you in terms of like you've got this storyline that you want to cover and then they've always got this albatross of or maybe they'll sign with the you know a WWE UK contract because um, I mean massive spoilers but um, if anybody wants to switch off quickly for the NXT UK shows but uh, Millie McKenzie obviously debuted. Uh, the uh, Cambridge uh, portion of the shows, and obviously she's quite heavily involved in Defiant in uh, in your women's title scene. So is it does it does it become a point where like um, you know it's hard to write long term storylines for people? Uh, it's always in the back of your mind that it could happen, but you can't sort of you can't base storylines on that. You've just kind of got to roll with the punches. It's wrestling; things change all the time. People get injured, you know. People stop wrestling sometimes people you know decide that they're going to sign for WWE or go to Japan or whatever it might be so you, you always have one eye on that but at the same time you can't let it dictate what you do because ultimately you know if guys get an offer or guys and girls you know get an offer and they take it it's it's their careers if that's what they think's best you know that's fine and Millie I, I kind of I had a suspicion that Millie would end up there. Now I should point out that it was a dark match and she isn't, she hasn't signed to the best of my knowledge yet. So who knows? Who knows? She, will she probably, you know, probably, uh, I, she's very talented and they'd be smart to take her. Frankly. Um, we preempted this possibility by putting the belt on B Priestley, who, is on the world of sport roster and works in Japan. So almost certainly isn't going to WWE. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but look, I hold no ill will whatsoever towards any of the guys who've signed for WWE. It's their dream. If I was in their position as, and as an active wrestler back in the day, would I have signed for them? Absolutely. Of course, of course you'd sign for them. For all the, all the industry, all the guys in the industry today grew up watching WWE. It's not like 20 years ago, you know, where people grew up watching you know, all kinds of things, WCW, maybe NWA, I guess, back then, yeah. or ECW yeah. or whatever it might be, you know, or, or even further back when wrestlers weren't fans of wrestling really at all, you know, it was just <laughs> something they ended up falling into from bodybuilding pals or whatever. So it's, it's a different world now, and, and this is people who've grown up watching it as a kid, and it's always been their lifelong dream to go there. So, yeah, I, I understand why they do it. So there's no ill will towards anybody. It's it's business, you know? You were, I mean, moving away from WWE and onto ITV World of Sport, I mean, that launched its 10-part series on ITV last week, and obviously eagle-eyed viewers will notice that your name popped up in the credits as a consultant. Um, how did you become involved with World of Sport and your role as a consultant on the show? um yeah i mean that's it's a good question um (laughs) eagle-eyed viewers indeed Uh, see i use my real name i hide it but (laughs) no no, i'm kidding um i can't go into too much detail about how exactly it came about but um i mean i can tell you a little bit about the the process and it was you know consultant is what it was described as myself and and doug williams and you know it was just it was kind of what I've been doing for, for what culture for a couple of years is just kind of helping the show go on, you know, giving, giving advice to the, to the wrestlers and and whatever about how to best perform the things that are on the script. 
and obviously it is heavily scripted because it's a TV show. Yeah, and you know more so than than what culture would be, or, or that that some of them are used to. But at the same time, a lot of those guys have had a lot of TV training over the years from NGW. Um, you know, because NGW had a TV show for for a couple of years on local TV, um, in a similar kind of time slot, you know, and th- so those guys are used to working to the cameras. Same with guys who've worked for for What Culture and Defiant, they're used to working for the cameras, working for the internet crowd, as it was. Yeah. <laughs> so the guys are a lot more prepared anyway, and it was just more little tweaks here and there of when you've done this move, look at this camera, or you know, throw this grimace or maybe do this move here and and it's just kind of been there to give advice and you know i think um consultants the tv term i suppose but yeah. i would say agent is a road agent is probably more accurate in terms of like what a wrestling audience would be used to um but it was like it was an honor it was an honor and a privilege to be part of it like british wrestling getting back on telly after 30 years I know there's been things here and there on smaller stations and, you know, there's been attempts before, but for it to actually get commissioned as a 10-part series and and genuinely be returning this time, it wasn't this wasn't a pie-in-the-sky pipe dream anymore. This is a real – it's actually happening. And it was, it was surreal but incredible to be part of that. And, you know, the, the atmosphere was, was superb. The team was tremendous. Everyone was working towards the same goal. And, you know, they were, we were working together. You know, we were working together to make something special happen. And it, it was so much fun to be part of. It was very, it was very intense. You know, we shot 10 episodes over yeah. two and a half days. So at any one time, you'd need the, the current script in your head, what had come before it and where we were going. Because everything's got to make sense, you know. So you'd you'd have to be on the ball, <laughs> really, with a lot of it. And it was it was a challenge, absolutely. But the the crew, the ITV crew, couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been more helpful, more professional. And uh, the entire team was was superb. It was it was great. Like I I really hope for the sake of the industry as a whole, and that includes NXT UK, that it takes off in a big way and succeeds because the best thing for WWE and for the scene is that we've got a British wrestling war, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's when was most people, if you ask them, when was WWE at its best? And it was during the attitude era when they were fighting WCW. That was when they were the most creative, the most interesting, had the most stars, genuine stars. That's what we, that's what we want now. You know, like if, if it's hot on ITV, it's going to be hot in local shows around the country and WWE will push NXT UK as something that they care about. If it doesn't work, and that'd be a real shame, then NXT UK will become less of a priority, I'm fairly certain. I'm fairly certain. I think that's quite obvious from the way the timing of WWE UK slash NXT UK, if you look back since its inception... (laughs) <laughs> it always follows on ITV announcements, you know, or ITV doing something. The pilot happens two weeks later. We've got this UK tournament, you know. Well, the pilot gets taped, and then you've got this. They they sign guys, then the pilot airs, then they've got this tournament. Uh, ITV announces it's coming back along with Impact. Suddenly, you've got this special in Norwich. 
that WWE did. Everything goes quiet on both fronts for ages. All of a sudden, they're both back at the same time. Yeah. I don't think that's a coincidence at all. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the guys who have signed for WWE or NXT UK this time around were on the pilot. You know, I'm sure that's not not an accident. And hey, it's one of those things. It's it's business, but hopefully for everybody's sake, both do well. That's what the whole scene should want. And anybody clamoring for this kind of well, it's not representative of true British wrestling. It should be progress on there. Let's be realistic, shall we? Progress does great for its audience. You know, in front of a thousand people every month or a couple of thousand people every couple of months, whatever it might be, absolutely. It's it's a fantastic product. Would that work to them for a mainstream audience of casual wrestling fans? I don't think so. You know, I think it's too insider. It's too cultish. I don't think it would would work at all. I don't think it would translate. And the other key thing to remember is if it's airing at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon, how much of what progress do can you even show? Yeah. <laughs> you know, how much of it can you see? Same with ICW. There's no chance, is there? Let's be realistic. Same with Define, you know, same with most promotions. There's a lot of things that it, it takes a lot to get a wrestling show on telly at five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And none of the, aside from NGW, which has been running these sort of family-friendly shows for many years, in, in like I said, in that kind of time slot on local TV, you know, there's not really any others out there who've been, who could do it, I don't think. So, you know, people need to be realistic in their expectations about what it should be. It's a TV show that has wrestling on it. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, obviously they're aimed more of an adult audience, and like you noted, their ITV's main uh, aimed more of a family sort of like Saturday tea time audience, isn't it? So two sort of like quite different demographics there. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, I mean, obviously we've talked uh, quite in depth about a lot of your career, but uh, what do you? What is the future going to hold for you then? Um, sort of like moving into two thousand, the rest of two thousand eighteen and two I mean, I mean, it's the impossible question, isn't it? Like two and a half years ago, um, I wasn't even involved in the business, and now, as as we speak, you know, I'm I'm involved in one of the UK's top indies. You know, I'm I'm right, the editor of a the Power Slam's successor, essentially, with Wrestle Talk magazine, and I've been involved in a small way, a small small way, in the return of British wrestling to telly. So. It's been pretty wild. Hopefully, the next two and a half years will be equally wild, um, but in a in a positive way. My hope is that World of Sport gets commissioned to go for several more series. You know that we get many years out of this. That we get you know tours and that we get house shows and you know whatever else it might entail. And I I think that would be be phenomenal. Um, and and hopefully that I'll have the chance to be part of it again. That that's my ultimate aim, and I think that should should be and is the aim of a lot of people in the industry. Um, I hope Defiant continues to go from strength to strength, and that's that's the goal to you know stay ahead of WWE signings and, and such, <laughs> and keep cultivating talent, promoting British talent, and and getting the names out there of guys who who maybe haven't been seen by a wider audience because we do still have that platform to do that and you know people do still talk about that that promotion not as much maybe but they still do 
in terms of my own wrestling career. You know, I, I came back to 3CW in 2016, I guess. You know, just because I was around wrestling so much with Defiant and slash WCPW that it, it gave me the urge to, to have a little go again. And I'm a lot slower, a lot fatter, but <laughs> it's still a... Uh, it's which I, which I am working on, but it's um, it's one of those things where it's it's fun, and sometimes I think you just need to do things that are fun and and relaxing, and I find three to W to be that. It's it's very low pressure, it's easy, you know, in, in the sense that I don't need to think about running the show. I just turn up, put my boots on, chop a couple of people, you know, go yeah. home, and it's <laughs> so it's it's relaxing for me and. You know, it's enjoyable. So, and hopefully that'll keep going and go from strength to strength. There's, it's always been very much rooted in the local community, 3CW. So, hopefully it'll continue uh, to grow at the appropriate rate. You know, and and just keep keep running for a while and giving a platform to to lesser known talent to to make a name for itself for themselves as as it has throughout the years. It, the the main thing for me is that that Wrestle Talk magazine becomes you know or carries on being a regular feature regular bi-monthly or even monthly feature yeah um, it's something i'm very proud of it's you know the books are great the promotions are great and wrestling's great but being able to be the editor of a of a magazine which is like i said in, in many ways the spiritual successor to power slam um stylistically and you know aesthetically and and in terms of tone, and the fact that we have you know Finley Martin as a, a regular yeah, monthly big one, isn't it? yeah yeah and, and Greg Lambert and recently as of issue six we've got uh, Patrick Lennon who did a uh, fighting talk in the Daily Star so he's he's joined the team as well you know to be working with those guys is great and um, it's really enjoyable to be able to put that out there because I grew up as as I said at the start of this epic Ben Hur interview. Um, Power Slam magazine was what kind of got like reopened my eyes to wrestling in '96. So being able to hopefully do that for people who watch wrestling now, that that would be great. I would absolutely love it if that was the case. If in 20 years somebody was speaking on a podcast or whatever hologrammatic voodoo we have at that yeah. point, you know, like if they were able to say, "Yeah, I read Wrestle Talk magazine," and you know, James Dixon's. Ryan for me now or whatever. So <laughs> I might just go by my real name by then. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Well, um, before we head out of here and get into the plugs about people where people can get the magazine, the books, and uh, check out what else you're working on, uh, I, I put out a shout out for some uh, fan questions. So uh, if you did anyone respond? If you if you'll indulge me, uh, we'll we'll get into some of them. Uh, I mean, firstly, we've got uh, Martin from Thirsk wants to know. Uh, oh God! How long have you been a massive fan of Lordy, and uh, how many of their albums do you have? That be Martin Kirby from Thirsk by any chance? Maybe yes. Yeah. <laughs> so right, I'll tell you what that is. What that's about? Martin Kirby is has the most vanilla music taste you can ever imagine. His his favorite band is genuinely, and this isn't a rib. His favorite band is Steps. Wow. He loves Steps, like and S Club 7 and other such tripe. So I'm a huge heavy metal fan and listen to it loudly on road trips. And when I, after I'd sort of trained Martin, I, I asked him uh, 
start going on road trips with us so he could start meeting people and you know become a familiar face because that's how you get right where it used to be how you got in yeah and because i was the quote-unquote vet i got to choose the music that i was putting something heavy on and it was around the time that lord you were in the eurovision song contest and he was like for everybody every band didn't matter if it was metallica if it was you know marilyn manson or if it was something actually heavy you know yeah. whatever that might have been at the time He'd be, so is this Lordy? And I'd be like, no, man, it's, it's not Lordy. But he couldn't tell the difference. Like, he couldn't tell the difference between Metallica and, and Korn and, you know, or Slipknot or whatever. Yeah. They all just sound like Lordy to him. So that's so that's why he asks. He's such a dick. <laughs> so that's funny. When he used to have David Hasselhoff as his music, that's probably what he was listening to behind the scenes as well. It wasn't just the Mike character. <laughs> 100%. No, no, that's, that's a shoot. <laughs> Right. Anyway, so thanks to Martin for that for that question there. And uh, I mean, so before we get out of here, where can people find out more about your books and and the rest of your work, the the Wrestle Talk magazine, etc. Uh, all the books are available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way to get them. You can get them via digital uh, Kindle download, or you could buy them, you know, the physical book, which I would advise because it's always better to have a book. Mm-hmm. I think as good as Kindle is, and it is good, but real books are the way to go you know um you can follow me on twitter which is at j dixon writer um and all all of your wrestle talk magazine needs including our yearly almanac which is a massive undertaking that covers everything that happened in 2017 and we'll do it again this year um reviews you know 400 of them there are (laughs) there's loads there and and so much information it's the ultimate geeky nerd book Um, all of that stuff in the mag is available at wrestletalk.bigcartel.com and occasionally I write for wrestletalk.com as well so I keep busy (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, that was certainly uh, very interesting, that book. I know uh, Finley Martin was obviously wanting to get a book off the ground a lot, wasn't he, when he was writing Power Slam? So it's good that you've got those sort of like yearly almanac sort of things. And then obviously you can uh, watch uh, any Defiant stuff on wearedefiant.com forward slash access. And uh, yeah. Dan, like you noted, it's been a, a Ben-Hur <laughs> Lord of the Rings <laughs> style interview, but you know, really fascinating, really interesting. And obviously you've had, had a, a lot of ups and downs in the wrestling business and it all seems to be on the up now. So uh, really thanks for taking the time to speak with us. You know, it's been a, a really great uh, interview. Thank you, man. It's been, it's been my absolute pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>